we're going to treat it as a human story. And in the end, whether the ETH is real or it's extra dimensional or it's complete bonk, it doesn't matter because in the end, it is very real to the people who experience it and therefore very a very real thing. The weird thing was, they weren't really reporting it to the police so much, and nobody else in the media was listening to it. So he became the focus, and when he became the focus, it really started to change the way everything happened in his life. By his estimation, he received 3,000 letters, phone calls, personal visits, people uh, stopping him on the street saying, I gotta tell you what I saw, let me draw it out for you. You know, try to imagine the pressure of that. People calling all the time going, I have to tell you this story. I can't tell anyone else. I can't tell my family or I can't tell my, you know, my boss. Nobody can know my name, but you can know it. One of the things that has occurred to me in this whole process is that in a quest to find answers about the inexplicable, it exposes how human we are and what it means to be human. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio with your host, Tim Banal. What is going on, my friends? This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com with another edition of BOA Audio Season 7. This week on the program, we are finally returning to the realm of UFOs as we welcome our guest, filmmaker Sean Cotts, who will be discussing the 1987 UFO flap in Withville, Virginia. Sean is the man behind the forthcoming documentary, Strange Country, a different kind of UFO documentary. What's very interesting about Sean's research is that he focuses not so much on the lights in the sky, but looks at the people on the ground and how they are affected by their UFO sightings. And particularly one man specifically, reporter Danny Gordon, who found himself in the center of this UFO maelstrom in 1987 in Withville, Virginia, after he made what appeared to be a seemingly innocuous report on a UFO sighting and then subsequently was overwhelmed with sighting reports from local citizens, strange characters who emerged in the area as the UFO flap grew, and a series of truly strange and troubling events which beset his life as he dug deeper into the UFO mystery. What you're going to learn here as the conversation progresses is that Sean Cotts has looked at the events surrounding the Withville UFO flap in tremendous detail. You can really tell the passion and fascination that Sean feels with regards to these series of events. And I think you're really going to be mystified by some of the truly strange things that happened in the area back in the late 1980s. We're talking about UFO sightings of glowing orange boxes 
photos that were taken of a UFO and then subsequently the negatives were stolen or the photographer simply disappeared and never returned with the materials. Death threats, break-ins, reptilian lizard-like creatures that were harassing the citizens of Withville. So just tremendous stuff, really strange things that are going to make you really wonder what was going on in Withville, Virginia in the late 1980s. Altogether, it is a chilling cautionary tale that examines how lights in the sky can profoundly affect and alter the lives of those on the ground who witness them as Sean Cotts revisits the 1987 Withville UFO flap. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Sean Cotts, allow me to provide you with a little background on him. For 16 years, Sean Cotts taught writing, literature, and film at his alma mater, Virginia Tech. In 2005, he reconnected with an old friend, Chris Valuzzo, who studied at the New York Film Academy, and the pair founded a documentary film company titled Horse Archer Productions. In 2007, they released their first documentary, Hokie Nation, about Virginia Tech's devoted football fan culture. With the success of that film, Cotts left his teaching post to pursue creative projects full-time. From 2008 through 2011, Cotts worked as a freelance journalist, largely with the Roanoke Times, and will complete his first novel this year. With Voluzzo, he has written, produced, and directed five feature-length documentaries, with at least three more on the way in 2012, including Strange Country, a different kind of UFO documentary, which should be completed in October of this year. His website is www.horsearcherproductions.com, pretty simple, all one word, horsearcherproductions.com, and there's also an Indiegogo campaign currently ongoing to help raise funding for the completion of Strange Country. You can find that at indiegogo.com slash strange country, and you spell that all together, I-N-D-I-E, G-O-G-O dot com slash strange country. Check it out. And with all that said, let's get down to business, my friends, and rock and roll. This interview was recorded on May 20th, 2012. Sean Cotts, talking about the 1987 Withville, Virginia UFO flap on BOA Audio Season 7. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of BOA Audio Season 7. Surprisingly, although I guess not surprisingly for people who've been listening to the program uh, lately, this is the first show we've done this season that's going to be dedicated solely to UFOs and the UFO phenomenon and specifically a very weird UFO flap that happened back in 1987 in Withville, Virginia. And, uh, you know, I personally had not heard about this. I'm sure it may have passed me by at some point in, in the, all the reading that I do, but it is really fascinating and, and it's just as fascinating for what went on in the sky and what people were seeing alongside the reactions of the people and the story that sort of came out of all this. And so our guest here, Sean Cox, He's a filmmaker. He's going to be making a movie about this. He's working on it right now, actually, and he's a longtime BOA Audio listener, and we've been sort of going back and forth for a while. He's been keeping me updated on it, and I wanted to get him on the program here to talk about 
the Withville UFO story and really uh, bringing out to all the BOA audio listeners out there who may not have heard of this one or had it, you know, slip through the cracks on them. So welcome to the show, Sean. It's great to have you on the program. Well, it's great. I really am happy to be here. So it's a, it's a pleasure. Well, I guess let's start out, you know, with the bio, the background. You know, who is Sean Cox? How did you get mixed up here in the in the Withville UFO story, and, and how did you end up deciding to, you know, pursue this for the film? Well, um, I, uh, I'm a writer and a filmmaker, um, and I've lived in the southwest part of Virginia um, for since '84 when I, I first came to college here at Virginia Tech, and then. Um, many years later, uh, I ended up teaching at Tech for about 16 years in uh, English and uh, taught literature, writing, film, a lot of different things like that. And uh, at a certain point in 2007, I, I just decided, you know, I'm, I need to stop teaching creative projects and start working on them more. So that's kind of what happened. And uh, a friend of mine, Chris Beluzzo, uh, moved back in the area, and Chris had gone to uh, – the uh uh he he had gone to tech too and he he was a uh a, a communications major then he took uh I, he had a directorial program at the um, uh new york film academy i believe he went through a kind of a program for them and, and he came back and we ran into each other and, uh, and we decided you know we really want to make films my son was at the time, about 14 or 15, and he was saying, Dad, I want to make films, I want to make films. And I was <laughs> like, well, there's this guy, Chris Valuzo, who's working here and doing that. Let's talk to him. You should do it. So one thing led to another, and we started making documentaries. And um, so uh, the first documentary was called Hokie Nation, which was about Virginia Tech's football fan culture, which kind of sprung up in the 90s and really had a lot to do uh, with the, the whole way the whole town changed and the way – um, largely for the better in the way uh, the program rose in prominence and it did really well and we got crazy enough to think we could continue to make documentaries that <laughs> we did uh, and um, to get to the Withville aspect of it uh, you know Withville is about uh, I'd say it's about 30 miles south of where we are okay. so uh, we get news from Withville now and then everybody knows where it is it's right it's it's interesting because Withville is right at the connection of uh Interstate 81 and 77 and it's not a very big town uh it's got about uh 8200 I think official residents now and back in the 80s when this was going on it had even less probably about 75 78 so really hasn't grown a lot in those sorts of you know population way but a huge number of people come through Whistle because it's the connection of the two intersections right right uh, with the interstates yeah which i think is you know something we can talk about a little bit later because it's odd that this event you know one of the theories on the event not to jump ahead too much is you know this is a government these are government vehicles that were being tested but it's an awful weird place to do it um you know, there there's actually a lot of road traffic going through that. So if you wanted to hide um, a secret military aircraft, it doesn't make a lot of sense that that's where you do it. Right. Um, so anyway, I got interested because I've been thinking about this now. When did I first hear about it? When did I first hear about it? I probably first heard about it in 91 or 92 when Unsolved Mysteries covered the case, okay. and um, it was actually featured on that show twice, as I recall. It had its own uh, episode. Uh, it was in part of a, you know, they tended to do like three stories, I think. Yeah, yeah, time. something like that, yeah. 
So this was one of the three. And then they went back and they did a kind of um, best of the UFO thing. Okay. And because it was so difficult to solve um, and there were really no answers and it had such a weird angle to it, they revisited it again. So that's how I got interested. I, re, uh, I guess sometime about two years ago, three years ago, I found it either on the Internet or on television or something. I was like, wow, that's right down the road. We should be doing a documentary on this story. Yeah, it's cool because it's like you, this major thing and you're actually pretty close to it. That's always a good sort of uh, jumping off point. And I presume yeah. you've always had an interest in UFOs and stuff like that then, right? I mean, or, or is this something so, sort of new to you as well? Well, I would say I've, I mean, I'm actually versed in it because I, I have an interest in, in anything that's like science fiction or anything that's like, uh, you know, mythology, folklore, that sort of stuff. Like I said, I taught English for a long time. So, um, and, and I write. So you, you know, you love those, you love a good story, just period. Everybody loves a good story. Right. Um, and, um, when I was, um, you know, very, very young, I was exposed to a lot of the, uh, you know, Star Trek, Star Wars, all that stuff that was coming out and uh, loved watching monster movies late at night and all of those things. So I think it does prime you to be interested in it. But um, I had never done anything on the subject before this, I, at least not professionally. I hadn't written about it. I hadn't tried, hadn't done any filmmaking on it. So there is a sense in which it was new. But I, I feel like in this case, in some ways it's not new at all because we're very used to telling uh, the, our, our stories as filmmakers through the words of the people that speak it. We, we don't use narrators generally and we don't, um, uh, we don't script the story and then find the people who will say what we want. We go out, we find what people have to say, and then we construct the story around that. And that human element, the personal story, is almost always neglected in yeah. UFO docs and UFO television. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's, 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 you hit the nail right on the head there. You've left me speechless because that's a big point that I've <laughs> noticed too. It's, it's, it's always about the, how flashy the, the depiction of the UFO can be and, you oh, know, yeah, and that kind shaky of thing. camera angles and lots of graphics and swooshes and, right, noise, right. you know, and, and then, um, and then the other thing is you always have the kind of swarmy narrator who on one hand will be saying, this is very important and interesting, we should be listening and paying attention, and then on the other hand saying, but you can't take a nut like that seriously. Exactly. And, um, you know, and we're not about that. Um, we, in a, in a way, I think it's really good that we haven't done any, any kinds of stories like this because we're going to treat it as, uh, as a human story. And in the end, whether we have whether the ETH is real or it's extra dimensional or it's complete bunk, it doesn't matter because in the end it is very real to the people who experience it and therefore very a very real thing. And and I think you know you, every now and then you'll see somebody interviewed like um like uh Linda Scarberry will get interviewed about the Mothman. You can see she's shaken up, you know. Yeah. But nobody seems to care. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean. Uh, although there was a really good Mothman uh, long documentary a, a couple of years ago, or a year or so ago, I was really impressed with, and they they did take it. But that's the kind of thing you look at it and you wonder, well, what happened to these people? Right, right. Because like you said, I mean, it, it, whether 
whether it was like an alien spaceship or a government craft or whatever, it still messed these people up pretty bad or, or left an indelible mark on their, on their lives. Yeah, and it can have, it can have multiple effects for different people too. Um, for some people, uh, depending on how, and then this is maybe a good transition to, to Danny Gordon, who kind of was the center of the Whitfield story. Right, right. And, and really the center of the film we're working on. Um, Danny was, uh, I think it's a very good example. Danny was a reporter, news director for um, a radio station called WYYE, and that was an AM station, uh, country music. Um, and in the morning, you know, they did their morning shows, and this was back before everybody had their morning shows piped in from somewhere else and yeah. on yeah. computers. So it was all done live and um and uh, in the morning, he'd read the news and weather, and he's a local sportscaster, local reporter. And uh, for what it's worth, before we go too far into this, Danny personally has – he used to be a UPI uh, a correspondent, a stringer. So he would cover news locally and regionally and then send it off to UPI. And he has a wall full of UPI awards for excellence in reporting. So we're not talking about somebody who, you know – yeah, this isn't like a wacky morning drive time DJ thing. No, this is somebody who is a very, very serious person. Right. And um, Danny has a sense of humor. He's intelligent and nice, and, um, you know, he's not, uh, you know, the kind of shove a microphone in your face and, and do that sort of thing. But he, he is a very serious reporter and always has been. That's my impression of the man. So Danny, uh, he's a lifelong resident of Withville, you know, um, and he worked as a newspaper journalist before he was a radio journalist. And then, um, like I said, he was part of the UPI. Um, for people that don't remember, that was United Press International. It was like the Associated Press and the right. wire service. Is that still around or is that folded? I, I, you know, offhand, I want to say it has folded but uh, or been absorbed into Reuters or uh, AP, one of yeah, the one two of those, we yeah. could look at. The, but um, the, uh, and now he's he's currently still a director for WYVE. I might have said WYYE. It's WYVE. Um, and their sister stations. And he still hosts a community fair show in the morning. Um so, uh, and he's been, just to give you an idea, here's, here's the guy we're talking about. He was on the Chamber of Commerce, uh, uh for six years. He's a vice cha- chairman of the Joint Public Services Authority. Uh, he was a past president of the Whitfield Recreation Commission. And he, he's an active in his church. You know, he's just, so we're talking about a very stable guy. Right, and, right, right. Now, so, he goes into work, uh, October 7th, 1987, doing just regular job, and he gets a call every day, or more or less every day, uh, sheriff would call in and let him know, you know, if there'd been any activity overnight, whatever had to be reported. Typically, it would be break-ins, accidents, that kind of thing. Right. Whitfield is, rarely has a murder. Uh, there's rarely anything, um, you know, that's going to cause a big deal internationally and nationally, especially at that time. The sheriff says at the end of his call, and he says, well, i got a story for you, Danny, and I don't know what we're going to do with it, but <laughs> I'll tell it to you. And he said, well, what is it? And he said, we had sightings of UFO last night, and uh, that includes uh, three police officers, or four police officers, actually. So when he, when he heard that, he started to pay attention. Um, you know, it wasn't just somebody, somebody out in the middle of the woods, uh, maybe, you know, just some random person. When you, right. And these 
uh, I think at least two of these police officers had military experience. So they'd been around military aircraft, and they would have a good eye for judging what was normal and what was not normal. And when he took that call and reported it, didn't take long before people were calling him in and saying, well, listen, yeah, I saw the same thing, or I saw something different, and here's what I saw. So within the next 24 hours, calls were flooding into the station, and uh, he was taking down this information as fast as he possibly could. Okay, so that's sort of that's how it all begins. Let me see how we even start on all this sort of uh, to unpack this this crazy story. So then, that sort of kicks off the flood of it all of of how this all exploded, I guess you could say, onto the scene, and then then it turns into a flap essentially, right? Yeah, what, what, you know, Danny starts getting, um, uh, people, he literally would get people stopping him on the street, calling him on the, the station, and, and many people were not afraid to be identified at all. And, um, but some of them were very hesitant, saying, oh, well, I don't want my name on the, yeah. the radio. And, and, uh, and we'll talk about that too, because that, that's part of this whole big phenomenon. But, um, so on the 16th, which was uh, about a week later, and uh, well, let me let me back up. I think it was on the 14th. And interestingly enough, the 7th, 14th, 21st, uh, they were all Wednesdays. And uh, I find that interesting because, uh, as I recall from John Keel, he he claimed that most UFO reports came in on Wednesdays. <laughs> For some reason, that was the day of the week. Uh, I don't know how scientific that information is, but it was by the by the next week. There were more reports, and um, in, uh, on the 16th, he decided, I think on the 14th, the, the sheriff said, uh, this, this was in the news on the 14th, that um, a family had been run off the road by a UFO. Uh, apparently, they were from out of state. Danny says they were from, he recalls them being from Ohio. The newspaper clipping I have just says out of state. Yeah. They claim that a... Um, Large objects hovered over them, followed them, and then um, took off with tremendous speed, and that forced them off the road, and they reported that. So stories like that were coming in yeah. to Danny, and he decided on the 16th, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to have uh, an hour or so. I'll just, we'll just cut the regular programming. People can call in. They don't have to identify themselves. Just tell us what you saw. Well, here comes here comes the array, and it's there are interesting aspects to this because some many 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 of the reports are similar one of the trademarks is most of these craft did not emit sound there were a lot of uh craft that would were or and I'm saying craft but lights that would join separate join um stuff we're kind of familiar with now being commonplace um uh small balls of light that would seem to chase each other, circle each other, form up and break apart. Um, huh. And then there were uh, there were the hugely large craft, some that were, you know, the classic sort of black triangle shape. Okay, yeah. And then, um, but not all. I mean, we're, uh, some of the weirder ones are um, several people reported a large orange flying box. And when I say several people, and this is this is worth knowing too, the area uh, that we're talking about centers on Whistle, but there are several counties and smaller communities, and these would be people that really don't have any, 
you know, we're not, this is all pre-internet, this is all pre-cell phone, it's all pre-email, um, and um, it doesn't get much TV news coverage at first. So people really, they, they would only hear these stories maybe on the radio, but um, people from all over started reporting these weird orange boxes, and Danny says he saw one himself hover over his car as he drove, and he said it was the weirdest thing. Um, See, that's just kids, bizarre, because I don't even yeah. think that, I don't think I can recall ever really hearing... Uh... Something like that. Do you know what I mean? I'm sure I'm going to get the hardcores of email and say, well, in 1775, they saw, you know, but I don't, you know, that's certainly not something that you hear about. Well, it's not common. Yeah, in UFO lore, if you will. And we had, uh, the, there was a group of kids that described what they saw as a giant silent floating school bus. It looked like a big orange bus shaped object that just floated by them in the sky. Um, in the early evening. And um, so these were the kinds of weird reports that he was getting. Now, this has gone on now for about two weeks. Okay. And Danny, is, is as a reporter, doesn't want to put himself in the story. I mean, keeping your objectivity, and I've done lots of journalism and news reporting, and you do everything you can to keep your um, objectivity. You don't put yourself in the you – know, somebody needs to tell some of these news organizations that. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> we, we hardly get any of that now. It's all everybody's idiotic opinion. But um, you, you should be keeping yourself out of it. So he had really resisted even looking skyward. And finally it got to be a lot, and he decided, well, if I'm going to be reporting, and if, if people are going to report it to me, and I'm going to be reporting, and I need to see if there's any anything to this. Um, he had he and a friend, uh, Roger Hall, who Roger had airline experience and um, was uh, somebody who's uh, uh, had uh, it was a business owner in the community, another stable person. They decide that they're going to go out looking for UFOs, and this is around the 21st, I believe. Okay, and. Um, he decides that, okay, well, we'll go out around the evening time. We'll drive around. They drive around for a while, and they go to these places where supposedly they've been seen. Nothing, nothing. And uh, all of a sudden, they're on their way back, and uh, driving down the road, they spot a very, very large, dark craft hovering a couple hundred yards off the roadside and, a, and not very high up in the air either. Um, and I'm trying to remember how high he said maybe – I don't know, a few hundred feet, and uh, moving silently and slowly. And, you know, imagine something akin to the the Phoenix Light situation where right. you just have this huge object. It, it, that blew their minds. Um, and they had gone out with a video camera and um, a still camera uh, in case they uh, – Actually, Roger actually had a video camera, which was kind of rare for the time, but one of those old giant VHS ones. Yeah, yeah. They pull over to watch this thing, and and when it passes, when it's gone, they look at each other and like, did you get a picture? <laughs> no, did you get a picture? No. And Now, this is odd, but it is common for people to have that experience where they see something, and they don't want to take their eyes off of it. Right, right. Yeah, you're so... It's such a fleeting experience anyway that it's like you're just so taken with what you're seeing that 
Yeah, if, and we're used to, again, right now we're used to having phones very, I mean, uh, cameras very accessible to us on our phones, um, and, or small digital cameras that people can keep in their pockets or purses or, mm-hmm. so, and it's not that world. We're not talking about that world. So, right. you know, people don't, even though they had a camera available, it's not like you think about it. If an elephant walked through my yard, it would take me a few minutes before I go, I should get a picture of this. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> I, I think I'd just be looking at the elephant. So um, that was that was proof for him. And the interest, one little interesting detail about that, and both men described the same thing. It was kind of flat at the bottom, seemingly dome-shaped, and um, there were three large windows or lighted areas that, um, seemed to remind them kind of of large bay windows that you might see in a house, only huge. Yeah. And uh, with white light in them, they don't report seeing any aliens or creatures or people or anything inside, but there's lights. And then a strobing red light as well. I'm kind of going from my memory here, but there was a strobing light uh, on that. And uh, it blew their minds. Hmm. So Danny decides... Well, there is something real going on here. Right. And let's, let's hold a press conference. And, uh, you know, in the meantime, he's been putting out, um, uh, headliners to, uh, UPI and there is some interest and, and now that he's seen it for himself, he wants to hold a press conference. Uh, now that was on, I think the 21st, looking at my notes here, it's the 21st that Danny had that sighting. Um, and it's the 20, uh, 22nd when um, he goes out on his second UFO hunt. Now, in the meantime, he's gotten phone calls from two very strange people. He gets a call from a guy named Andrew Convery, who claims to be a computer analyst in um, uh, in uh, Norfolk, Virginia. Now, Norfolk's on the other side of the state, and it takes... Um, Quite a long while to, I would say it's about a five or six hour drive to get from Norfolk to, uh, to, uh, Whistle. Oh wow, and, five uh, or six just, hours you say? Oh yeah, easily. Oh wow. Easily. Um, you know, you kind of imagine the state, um, the southern part of the state is one really long, you know, stretch of mountains and then flatlands and swamps and then you're all, to the ocean. So, I mean, Virginia as a, as a state has a, a wide, uh, ge- type of geography. Yeah, that's true. I'm and, thinking about it now, yeah. Yeah, and then, but there's very little that cuts right across the bottom of the state. So, even though by a straight line, you might be able to drive pretty quickly from, well, not quickly, but a little shorter, Norfolk, there's really no highway to do it. So, this guy says, I'll be there as soon as I can. And apparently, um, he showed up, um, on something, you know, that was just a little bit larger than a mini bike, like a mini motorcycle, and apparently had driven through cold weather, um, to, you know, and this is part of the cast of characters that, that show up, you know, you, right. <laughs> you get people. Um, but in the meanwhile, he, he, he gets off the phone with Convery, says, do you mind if I come up and look at this? I have military experience. I, maybe I can help you identify this. And they, he says, sure. And, Two, three minutes later, he gets another call. Um, this time it's from, um, and I, I may, may have gotten it inverted here, but who called first? Next one is a guy named John Stember. Some people may know who John Stember is. He was, um, still is a photographer. And um, he's made a 
really interesting living as a photographer. He did a lot of fashion stuff in the 70s and 80s, and um, you can look him up online and check out John, I think it's John Stember, S-T-E-M-B-E-R.com, and a lot of people will be very jealous because apparently he shoots uh, nude and half-nude fashion models on the beaches of Tahiti for a living. And wow. Uh, yes. How does one, where do you apply for that job? I know, I know. It's not on a typical list of majors in colleges. <laughs> but, um, and this guy apparently, uh, you know, as, as Danny describes it, he shows up and he's got, well, essentially his girlfriend, a fashion model in tow. But he wants to, he says, I have a video camera, I have, I'm a professional photographer, I'd like to be part of it. Would you mind if I can come down? Danny says, absolutely not, come on down. So within 24 hours, both these guys show up. And uh, they decide to go out UFO hunting again the next night. And uh, after not seeing very much and not uh, uh, getting very far, they get a call from a woman in, I think it was Rural Retreat, uh, which is about mm, 10 minutes, not even, south of Withville. And uh, they hop in the car and they go, uh, he describes it as it was like a bunch of cowboys mounting horses. They're all <laughs> yeah. crazy, you know, running out there trying to find this thing. And... And they do, in fact, get photos, and the, uh, nothing was there by the time they got there, but on the way back on the road, they were able to spot a UFO. And they got photos, and they got video. Now, what happened to those photos in that video? John Stember, according to the stories I've heard, said, I'm going to take these back to New York. I will get back to you. I'm going to develop them myself. And then he disappeared. And those photos disappear. And supposedly there is video out there, but or there was video taken, but whatever happened to it, nobody knows. But now, see, I'm confused because he say he disappeared, but he's got a website and everything. I mean, yes, but I mean, he when I say he disappeared, I don't mean he disappeared off the planet. He, I mean that um, he removed himself from the story, and Danny could not get him to forward any. Uh, photos after. Odd. Now, have you, now this is like 25 years later, have you reached out to him at all in, in the process here to see if if he'd relent or maybe enlighten you as to what happened? Yeah, that was one of the first things I did was get on his web. That's how I know about his website. I yeah. <laughs> looked him up and I've sent him a, a couple emails and I'm getting no response. Um, I'll have to go back and look to see if there is a phone number there. I try to go email first because it's, you know, when you're when you're making documentaries, uh, I think it's very helpful to sort of it's like a an old style calling card where you put your card out first and you say, "Here's who I am." <laughs> yeah. See, you can look at my website, see that I'm legitimate, and so I have a tendency to do that with a lot of people. Although you know, I will cold call them too, but he uh, has not responded so far. Uh, will he? I don't know. Um, I think. You know, if he is in Tahiti, uh, as much as I'd love to have the budget to run out there, and <laughs> <take> him, <laughs> I'd be happy to go take him. Just say no, I don't know anything about what you're talking about. But, um, <laughs> but uh, so far, I have not been able to get in touch with him. Although I have tried, and we're still, you know, we're still pretty early in this process. Right, right. Um, he may only be listening right now, so he might know, be. Step it up, um, dude, and deliver these photos to us. Absolutely, saying, John, if you're out there, this is important. Yeah, uh, yeah. Or so, uh, tell us why you bailed on the whole thing. I mean, that could, yeah. be just as, that could be just as interesting. I mean, maybe he was warned off. It, well, he could. It's it's possible. You know, it's hard to know 
what happened? Uh, he is a professional photographer. I can, and I'm only speculating here. Okay, so don't take any of this to the bank. But I can see a scenario where he's working for major publications, magazines, and so forth, and they, and he says, I've got this, and somebody says, well, I don't want, don't publish them or you're not working for me. You know, I need you to, I don't want somebody to think of my photographer or my, you know, uh, my photographer is the, the nut job taking UFO photos. Right, right, um, right. And so, and that kind of thing, you know, does happen. Uh, I talked to one woman who, uh, kind of breaking the storyline here, but I, let me give you an example of this. I, I, I talked to a woman, um, on the phone, called her up and she was still living locally and I said, um, would you mind talking to me about this, uh, this, this event? And she said, oh no, I don't mind at all. My husband won't talk to you. <laughs> and I said, uh, uh, why not? He, she said, well, he, um, he talked one time to one reporter and when it got, after it got in the paper, the next day he went to work. He apparently was, uh, uh, working on some construction equipment like those caterpillar bulldozers or something. Yeah. And somebody had painted a UFO on the side of it and, um, and, uh, I won't use his name, but they sort of, uh, con- uh, twisted his name around to be a bit of a derogatory, uh, term and, uh, he was ridiculed for it. And so weird, like, why people. <laughs> well, it is. You know. It is, but it's also very common. And oh, absolutely, I think, yeah. I think part of it is, you know, we, we forget that we're, we're animals. You know, we're pack animals, basically. We're like the most successful pack animals ever. And we, somewhere in the back of our minds, we feel constantly like we've, got to be part of the group. Even if we don't like the group, we feel like we got to be part of it. Um, and I think that, you know, it's kind of a bull. The, the truth is it's a bullying tactic. By pushing someone else to the edge of the group, you you solidify your place in the group. So right, right, right. ridiculing yeah. somebody who's different, I mean, that's old old school tactics. Unfortunately, you know, in, in it, it hurts the individual. And it also, in the case of, UFO research, it's going to stop any serious discussion. Right, right. Well, that's, you know, there's a whole myriad of of why that seems to happen, too. You know, I was talking about this with somebody last night. I think that, that a lot of people are just terrified of this. They can't actually deal with the the, the reality of it. You know? Yeah, it could be very unhinging. Yeah. You know, if you, if you have your whole reality pinned... Um, you know that red is red and blue is blue and green is green, and then you know suddenly you're looking at purple. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it doesn't sit well. Is it blue? Is it red? What do I do with that? No, nah, it's got to be red because I'm going to call it all red. You know. Yeah. That is a, re- a reaction people get. So this well, is he, all. It, go, uh, let me just uh, we'll sort, sure. sort of get it back in into the narrative part of it. So now, so now this is all sort of unfolding in, in October, and, and he's got. Did he get any? Now I've seen pictures, so apparently there were some, right. some, something got salvaged out of this, right? That's right. Those pictures happened um, in December. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, and well, let me tell you what happened next because he decides he's going to hold this press conference. Yeah. And um, the uh, the press conference draws um, television and radio uh, comfort, uh, people from all over. Uh, the region, and they actually had so many people drawing power off their little station that they blew the circuit. 
<laughs> um, and uh, so it was a, it was a you know pretty big deal for this town. And um, the uh, after the press conference within I guess that was on the twenty second or third. It was on the twenty third. Within about forty eight hours, the first official government um, explanation comes out. A uh, tech sergeant, and this is one of these things that's just really weird. Um, a tech sergeant from the uh, Tennessee Air National Guard uh, talks to uh, some AP reporter and says, "I I have it solved." And in fact, I even have a um, a clipping for a newspaper clipping that says, "UFO mystery solved." Um, <laughs> and the tech the tech sergeant says, "It's refueling." Um, refueling missions. And, you know, it's very possible that some of the sightings were refueling missions because you, you would, you would see lights coming together and joining and then, you know, separating. Yeah. Um, not quite in the way that a lot of people were reporting it, but, you know, there was the possibility of, of that for sure. Uh, the problem was that people were seeing these, um, Things happen at low altitudes, a thousand, two thousand feet, sometimes lower. And if you're going to do refueling, it should happen at least at thirteen thousand feet. Right, right. So, uh, Danny called uh, a um, uh, called up to the Pentagon to ask, "Is this?" Well, first he called the base commander of the Tennessee Air National Guard, and the base commander said, "I don't know what he's talking about." Yes, we're running maneuvers, but. You, you, they're so high up, you know, you should, nobody should be able to, to, to identify them that clearly. And then he called the Pentagon and, and Bud Rothgab, who was the deputy chief of operations for the Air Force, uh, secretary, told him flat out, well, if somebody's doing it at anything under 13,000 feet, somebody's ass is going to be in a swing. Right. Because this is not, you know, this isn't kosher. But the effect was when that, when that, um, article ran on the newspapers and ran as a news blurb on TV and radio stations. Oh, it's been solved. It's refueling. That was when it started to get dropped. At the same time, the uh, sightings locally and personally for Danny and for many other people continued and even escalated. Hmm. So the effect was that nobody was going to hear the story now. Um, Danny says that during this period um, between uh, the November, because this this really would have been about the end of October that this is coming out. So from November to um, January, he was pushing out um, these updates and reports about recent sightings, and then UPI came in and said, we don't want to hear it anymore. And Danny says, okay, well, what if something crashes here? And they told him, we don't want to hear it. Wow. So, you know, what happened in that period? Well, I don't know. What, what changed UPI's mind? I don't know. You know, there were, sometimes uh, I do follow the UFO thing. I do think it's very fascinating. And a lot of times we talk about the government conspiracy, the concept that the government is clamping down everywhere. Um, it doesn't really take that. <laughs> it takes one edit, chief editor to go, I don't want any more of those damn stories. And that's it. Right, exactly. And that's it. And it doesn't go out on the wires and, yeah. Yeah, it's like, don't send me that. 
I don't want to hear it. I got, you know, we've got, uh, on a, there was an election that year, you know, that was, and that's, that's the other thing. There's other news. So uh, once they had it solved, once they had a, a solution, they didn't want to hear it anymore. Right, right. Um, and plus, you also have to consider, like, that from the editor's point of view, uh, it may even be like a benign sort of thing where it's like you can't really go any further with with these exactly. updates on the UFO flap, if you will. I mean, it's important to us because we're in the UFO community or we're interested in the UFO phenomenon, but it's like to the editor, it's like, well, a month or whatever of these daily reports, it's like, dude, I, you know, I can't do anything else with this unless something changes in this story. You know what I mean? Exactly. If there's... Um they start to become redundant, and um, as you know, there are thousands upon thousands of reports every year right. in, uh, across the globe. Only a handful get to uh, the news, and they have to. They tend to be the sensational ones. And I'll tell you something else. This is a, here's another little thing when we're talking about the news. The National Enquirer uh, sent a reporter to uh, do something on this, and. Uh, the uh, Danny says he stayed for a couple of days, ran up a big bar bill and left, and <laughs> did nothing. On his way out, he said, "I can't run a story on you." And Danny said, "Why?" I said, "You don't. It's not weird enough. Your people aren't weird enough. You don't have enough people. You don't have nobody's claiming abductions and the anal probes. Nobody's claiming. So basically, the town itself remained fairly calm during all this stuff. Although there were." You know, attempts to, there were some attempts to capitalize on it and the town was very engaged in it. I do think they took it with a sense of humor as well, but, um, the town itself wasn't full of crazies and the National Enquirer had no story to run. So there was that element to it too. After a while, you're reporting lights after lights after lights. But that doesn't mean the people who are experiencing them, that doesn't mean they aren't being affected by it. And that's the part that tends to get missed. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. As we've said, the, the media—they're only interested in the in the UFO aspect of it, not yeah. not, not the not the witnesses. Yeah, it's filler for them, and they let you know. Um, again, I'm painting a broad brush with they. I've literally been in journalism, so I'm part of they, I guess. But um, they would like to have an exciting, interesting, a funny, or or you know, a captivating story once a day at least because it's good. It's good for the paper. It's good for the newscast. It's good. you know you always if you watch local news, you tend to get at the end of the, every local newscast. They, there's something you know, a kitten in a drain pipe or right, exactly. You know? There's something odd, like an odd. That's where they put the oddball stuff at the end. Yeah, and and that's really the way people looked at it. Um, and uh, now that's not to say reporters didn't take it seriously. Danny says that um, for the most part, reporters did take it seriously. They did their job professionally. Some kind of laughed and scoffed. Uh, and uh, you know, while this after this started, and and this is a point I haven't, I don't think I properly stressed. Danny became the personal repository for people reporting these things. So during this period. He's getting phone calls all night. Uh, people are coming by his office all day. He's not able to work uh, because he literally will have uh, people calling him, stopping by, wanting his attention, wanting to tell him a story. He can't do his job, so it, he'll get it, it through most of the day 
uh, entertaining that and then have to spend his evening trying to catch up on his work. And then he'll go try to go to sleep and he'll get a call at 3 a.m. with somebody saying he said he got a call from a, I think it was a state police officer at 3 a.m. one morning saying, you got to come out here and look at it. <laughs> like, I, by the time I get there, I, you know, I can't do this. Right. But the weird thing was, they weren't really reporting it to the police so much, and nobody else in the media was listening to it. So he became the focus. And when he became the focus, it really started to change the way everything happened in his life. He, he, you know, we were talking about the pictures a minute ago. He kind of, he calls those photographs the watercress moment because once he took those photographs, then the, the attention on him changed. Um, because now he had something. Right. And now he was, he was part of it. Uh, those photographs were taken over a shopping center. It was Christmas time. You know, it was December 2nd, again, a Wednesday, by the way. Um, and uh, he was out Christmas shopping with his family, and he was in the, um, the parking lot of a store called, I think it was the Roses at the time. Um, not many of those left anymore. And he, uh, he was out there, and everybody around is looking up. And uh, four lights flying in formation, pretty tight formation, um, but l- looking like separate craft to his eyes were passing over. By that time... He was going everywhere with a 35-millimeter camera loaded with 3,200-speed film so that he could catch anything that came by because he had learned his lesson and he didn't want to lose another opportunity. <laughs> um, and um, he shot, was able to get off four pretty good shots of this. Uh, and um, fortunately, he took them to uh, a local print shop that actually made print copies of it. And, and I say fortunately because um, months later he would discover that someone had broken into his house and stolen that specific roll of film. And uh, Danny says he had a whole drawer full of canisters. Only one was missing, and it was unmarked, and it was the one that had his UFO photos on. How that happened, he doesn't know. Somebody wanted those pictures. Yeah, somebody wanted those pictures. And that actually happened in the spring. We can we can get to that too because it does seem to be tied with some other events, but uh you know, and he he says that was a professional job. At the time he was living and during this period too. <laughs> as I start to tell this, I start to realize, wow, this is a really complicated story. <laughs> all right, I think we it really is. We're doing all right. I'm I'm letting you, you know, I'm letting you unroll it here for us. Okay, so, well, I'll see what you I know, can do. I don't do. like to get in the way, so go ahead. I'll <laughs> go see ahead. what I can do. Well, he, they were living in a mobile home, um, and his family was living in a mobile home at at that point. They also they had to leave the mobile home at one point because um, his daughter was getting no terrible nosebleeds, and it seemed like um, he he says that uh, you know he'd be on the phone and his phone would start whenever he whenever he started talking about UFOs, it'd be a hum that would come on, and then when he stopped, yeah, hum would go away, and so they had all these weird sort of things happening, and they decided to move out of that and and go to a uh, an apartment, but also during this period, the stress on the family was tremendous. I think you're married, right? No, no. You're, oh, okay. Well, I am. So <laughs> let me tell you how that works. <laughs> Phone calls at 3 a.m. are not cool. 
I can imagine, yeah. Now, <laughs> they are not. Was there, while all this is going on now, this is like becoming a, what, had it sort of burst into the national scene yet? And, and you know, conversely, or I guess, uh, you know, in accordance with that, what was going on in the UFO community? Were they were they starting to come down and hear about this and, and look into it, or was it still sort of under the UFO radar, no pun intended? Yeah, it was. It was sporadically. It would still create interest, and some. But it. W- but what would happen is it would tend to be fairly large scale interest. I mean, hard copy was there. It was an old news magazine type yeah. show. Um, he he listed out uh, WUSA, which was I, I think a CBS affiliate in um, in Washington D.C. Came down and did a story on it. Uh, Channel Five, which is now a Fox affiliate out of D.C. I, I could be wrong about that. They came and did a story on it. Um, he did lots of radio interviews. He did radio interviews in uh, as far away as Japan. Oh wow. Um, yeah, so people did know about this. Um, he said, uh, yeah, I'm trying to think of some of the places, New York, Detroit, uh, I think he said San Antonio. Um, he was at, at various points invited to go to UFO conferences, which, which he did do, um, here and there. But, uh, yes, it did. But one of the other byproducts of it is that it was, it started to attract people to the town. Right. And Danny says, he never knew when he answered the door what he was going to find there uh, or who he was going to find. And um give you a good example of that, uh, he had a couple fellows approach him that said they were from uh, reporters from uh, Charlottesville paper. Uh, Charlottesville is um, in central, north central Virginia. It's a good three-hour drive from Withville, I'd say. Um, but they had come down to cover the story, and they wanted to talk to him. And, and, you know, and Danny said, okay, well, come on over to my house. We'll get some pizza and some beer, and we'll we'll have a conversation. I'll tell you whatever you want to know. One of these guys even bounced to Danny's daughter up and down on, her, on his knee, you know, and very chummy with the family. Now, about an hour goes by. A guy, one of the guys says, uh, I, I gotta tell you, I think maybe the beer is giving me a headache. I think I need to lie down. And Danny said, well, use our bedroom. Just, you know, go on, go on up and use the bedroom. Right. And, uh, he continues chatting with the other fellow. About an hour later, guy comes back and says, well, I'm feeling okay, but I think we need to, to get on. And they wrapped it up, walked off, drove away. Danny goes in the bedroom. The whole place has been ransacked. <laughs> and, uh, Again, you, this is one of those not cool factors. <laughs> right, right. You don't feel safe in your home when this kind of crazy stuff happens. And so it put a lot of stress on the family. Now, Danny calls the newspaper the next day and says, what do you mean by sending these two juggers down here? And they said, we didn't send anybody. We have no idea what you're talking about. Well, the crazy part, too, is like, what? what's this guy thinking, the guy who's, like, tearing apart the, like, <laughs> You gotta what have some guts. Like, yeah. You know, like, what are you gonna jump up the window if the guy comes <laughs> up to his, uh, back up to the room? It's like, geez, they must have made a hasty exit when, when he came downstairs, so. It, it, it appears that that's what happened. There was a very quick excuse made, and, you know, and you, you have to understand too, the, the culture here. Um, this is, um, Southern Virginia, it's Appalachia. Um, don't, for anybody, uh, I heard two newscasters today say Appalachia. Just, you know, here's the, here's the lesson of the day. It's Appalachia. If you come down here and say Appalachia, we know you aren't from around here. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, in Appalachia, uh, it's, it's 
you invite someone in your home and you offer them food and you offer them, you know, coffee or a beer or water or whatever. You just do that. Now, I know a lot of people do that, but it's, it's part of the culture to do it. And, um, it's, it's one of these sort of open hand gestures where you do it to show you, I trust you. It's a sign of respect that I have for you and I'm going to trust you now. Your job is to act right when you're in here. Right. And, um, that is part of what's so offensive about it is that Danny was being a nice guy, trust, a trusting guy was just trying. And you got to remember, a lot of people at this point would have gone, why is he even letting anybody in his house? Why is he even talking to anybody? But he's a reporter. And as he puts it, he, he could just as easily be calling them saying, you have a story, I would like some information, can you help me out? Reporters do that with each other all the time. Right, even, right. even reporters who are in competition, it used to be a lot worse, but even reporters that are in competition are often, if, you know, if you're out of the market but maybe work for a different wire service or something, you might, you might give them a little information or whatever, you, you know, because eventually it's going to get out anyway, you might as well be helpful because you don't know when you're going to need to call that guy and say, you know, can you help me with a contact? Exactly, yeah, you know. Sort of a like, you know, they're comrades in a sense, you know. So, yeah, it's uh, a brothers in arms in a way. Yeah, exactly. Every, and that's part of what's so offensive, you know, when when somebody uh, uh, puts on that ruse and uh, and takes advantage of you because you know you got to feel violated in that way. Here you are. Here Danny is being a nice guy, trying to help promote the story, and you know, even going so far as to buy them pizza and beer. And what do they do? Wreck his home. Right, right. Well, they certainly weren't, you know, you tend to think that those guys, who knows what, what their affiliation was, you know. The first, you first jumped to sort of like some kind of government thing, but you just never know. Yeah. Just well, that, know. And again, it doesn't have to be government. And it can be one of the things that we find, you know, just as a, I'm, I can't say I'm part of the UFO community. I really can't, but I, I, I'm an outside observer. And one of the things I've consistently observed is, the UFO has a community has a tendency to eat its own mm. and to um, to stake out territories and claims and and be very possessive about information and very possessive about you know uh, access to information right, and, right. and it, it's unfortunate that's not everybody you know that's not and I'm certainly wouldn't can't say this person that person but, but it does happen and and I and it so easily could have been somebody from the UFO community wanting to get an inside. Uh, information. Right, well. that was the other thing I was thinking too. Yeah, you hit you hit the nail on the head there. Could have been someone, not necessarily like someone in the UFO community either, just like a crazed UFO enthusiast or something. You know what I mean? Right. Two two guys were like, well, we'll get down there and we'll talk to him, and then you go up and you know see if he's hiding anything that we yeah absolutely we can know about. Absolutely, and um, you know, some people are like that. They're they're very. That's going to be the big thrill of their life. So that's what they're. This is their big sting operation. Right. And um, so you just never know. And that's part of the problem with trying to sort any of this stuff out. Um, there are. That's you just have to accept that. Um, you know, I was asked uh, recently. Do you think you'll find a solution to this? Uh, to what the UFOs were there, and I could only say. 25 years later, no, I really don't. I th- there's, we have to accept that there's murky area, and there's always going to be murky area. There's always going to be another way to look at it, and there's always going to be another uh, possible uh, theory that that can fit the facts. Right, um, right. It's just this is such an enigma that it, this is yeah, like over Roswell, and that was like 60 years ago. So something that's like only 25 years ago, it's like. 
Yeah, and and that's why, like to me, a huge part of what this really is about is recording, uh, documenting what happened to the people. Because I can't, I can't tell you that was a secret government project. I can't, I can't be sure. Maybe, maybe not. I can't tell you that it was, you know, reptoid from Zeta Reticuli. You know, if I'd be crazy to stand there and say that's, I know what the answer is. But uh, so I don't. But, but what I can tell you is, um, it turned uh, a man's life upside down and it's an interesting study of of uh human behavior um and the kind of people that uh that there are in this world right. both both decent and and indecent and that's unfortunate so to sort of like get back to the narrative so we're we're, we're sort of like in the december time frame here right i know that the uh the yeah. photos were yeah taken in november like the new he, year. november they had a ufo uh conference uh and they, none of them had ever been to a con and they just Sort of, um, he, he working with a couple of other folks, a reporter from the Times, Paul Dellinger, he would go on to write a book with Paul, uh, in my, I think Dellinger is actually the proper pronunciation, but, um, and other folks, uh, held a, a conference where stories were told, exchanged, and this was in mid-November, and then the next, you know, during this time, Danny's seeing all kinds of things, you know, and it's like, for him, once the, I think having that camera was really important for him because once uh, the gates opened, he was seeing all sorts of things, classic flying saucers, um, uh, orange boxes, uh, black triangles. You know, it's like the, yeah. <laughs> like the demonic version of Lucky Charms, orange boxes, <laughs> black triangles, you know, yellow moons. I mean, all sorts of crazy stuff. And uh and I think he started to feel like he was going a little nuts. Um but the camera, you know, was there for him and he did get those photos. Now he still is looking for an answer. And uh and Danny was calling the Pentagon, he was calling Air Force Bases, he was calling um there was a balloon works apparently in um North Carolina. He had talked to them, they weren't flying any balloons around here. Um he was talking to uh, uh, people at airports to make sure they're, you know, what the flights were going on. Could there be anything that would, would look like this? So, um, by January, um, Danny's still trying to report this, even though I think UPI had kind of given up on it. Uh, Richmond Times runs a big, uh, article on it. Uh, it's a, they have a huge, one of their Sunday sections has a huge front page on it, uh, with UFOs and a pretty detailed story. This was late January, and um, that seems to have kicked in interest again for people. Um, and uh, in March, as I said, Danny was uh, had won UPI awards. He had actually won an award, several awards, uh, as I take it, uh, that for his reporting during 1987. So in spring of '88, he was asked to come down to Virginia Beach, which is on the you know. Uh, again, long, long way from home, deliver a speech to people, to, to his fellow reporters and accept some awards, which he did. Right before he goes, day or two before he goes, he gets a phone call. And the phone call is from a guy who claims to be, uh, to have gone a little too far. Uh, I think he said he was ex-CIA. I have to look this up. Uh, but he, uh, his name was, he was one of these characters named Smith. I think it was William Lawrence Smith, <laughs> claiming to be from um, uh, Covington, Virginia. And, and Smith told Danny, stay away from this story. You need to stop pursuing it because 
they, the infamous they, are going to come after your family. And, uh, in fact, let me see here. I might have that information right here. Yeah, from Clifton Forge, William Lawrence Smith. Um, and uh, he told Danny that he shouldn't be going down to Virginia Beach. That um, he said, quote, I'm, you are pursuing something I've been, I've been pursuing, but you're new to it. I've been pursuing this thing for many, many years. I saw my son die of leukemia. He was just as healthy as could be. In fact, I told people I thought they would hit my son um, to get back at me. So Smith says, don't go, don't go. They're going to go after you. They're going to go after your family. They told Danny uh, they would put chemicals on his door handles um, that would drive him insane or cause illness and that they could, you know, cause cancer. They could do all these things to him. Don't go. Okay. Well, uh, so Danny's now got to make a decision. What do I do? You know, do I stay home? Do I live my life in a, you know, a box here, terrified, or do I go? So he went. His son stayed with someone else. He brought his wife and daughter. But he did wear gloves <laughs> just in case. Now, what's odd, and Danny points this out, and I think this is interesting, at the very same time, right down the road from where he was staying, a pizza hut had a hepatitis outbreak. Oh, weird. Yeah. And Danny says, now, had I gone to Pizza Hut and eaten that pizza there and gotten hepatitis, I would be convinced the government put a hit on me. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Now, during this time as well, um, the Air Force, I think it was Langley um, is the base down there, somebody had requested that, that Danny bring the negatives of those photos he had taken. Said uh, we'll take a look at them. We'll analyze them for you and set up a meeting. You can come by at this time. We'll we'll you know we'll talk together. When he gets there, however, he's told, uh, "I'm sorry, Mr. Gordon. Uh, nobody can see you today. If you'll just leave your negatives with us, we'll make sure they get back to you." Well, <laughs> you, you buy that? <laughs> Who's going to do that, right? So Danny Danny had uh, not brought them. To begin with, he was already suspicious of this, I guess. And, and he said, he told them, he said, well, this may have been my mistake because I said, oh, well, I didn't actually bring them with me. So we'll have to do this at some other time, just set up another time. And, of course, that never happened. And it was later when he got home and he was looking for that roll of film that he realized that one canister of film was missing. Huh. So fortunately, the the print shop had run off some prints, and so what we have are not actually taken from negatives. Um, what's available is basically a copy of a print, um, and so it's a little grainy, and you know, and unfortunately, not as clear apparently as the originals were. Jeez. So, so this is ongoing. This is going on from October. It's still. Does, what's the sort of like pace of all this? Is it starting to slow down a little bit as the new year starts, or is it getting more crazy? Or you know, what's what's the sort of feel for that? Yeah, well, the story is we're getting it. You know, as we're getting it through taped interviews with Danny and other people, um, it's hard to figure out exactly what the escalation point is. But I did, I do have one fellow. Um, I think it is Roger Hall, his his friend, who said he felt like the peak was actually in uh, between January and March, was where most of the sightings occurred. Yeah. According to Danny's estimation, and we are talking about a period of at least two or three years, with the high points being late, um, uh, well, with it beginning late October and the high points being somewhere 
in um, between October of 87 and um, the summer of 88 in there. Uh, he says that um, he had received thousands of reports. By the time he had finally gotten exhausted and um, uh, and just really felt like it was becoming dangerous, by the time he had quit, and this would have been about a year, two years later, it was uh, it's up to 3,000. Oh, so wow. He, by his estimation, and it's an estimate, but by his estimation, he received 3,000 letters, phone calls, um, personal visits, um, people uh, stopping him on the street saying, i got to tell you what I saw. Let me draw it out for you. Now, if we go by the 10% rule, okay, which is that 90% are either copycat sightings or can be explained. They're conventional things that people just can't identify, but they're normal. If, even if we have t- just 10%, that's 300 people. Right, exactly. That's 300 sightings. That's a lot. Yeah, yeah. So something was going on there. There's no doubt yeah. about that. I mean, this isn't just like one one UFO sighting. This is this is like an ongoing thing. Right, and I, and there really is no doubt about that. Something was going on. The the uh, the government by um, offering explanations acknowledges something is going on. So uh, even even people who are you know don't believe it's. Um, uh, anything out of the ordinary, admit that um, there's something at least in the air. Yeah. Uh, they also, another uh, explanation was um, B-2, that it was uh, uh, test flights of B-2 bombers. And um, some of, you know, the, the stealth technology that uh, the United States had had already been sort of exposed. And I believe, you know, there were even like model kits of stealth bomber airplanes on the shelves in the in the 80s. Um, so it was was not that uh, people didn't know about it, but they weren't seen very frequently. And um, a lot of people say, yeah, there was the stealth bombers we saw, and then there was the real stealth bombers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? And that may be true. That really may be true. But uh, so some of it, yeah, that was probably some of it. Danny admits that was probably some of it. But a stealth bomber doesn't hover for 20 minutes and then blink out. Right. You know, it doesn't. It doesn't make zero noise. You know, it doesn't shift directions. It doesn't break into several lights and go in an opposite, two opposite directions. Exactly. That doesn't happen. There's there's a lot of weird stuff going on with these sightings. So it's like, and we're and some of the people we're talking about here. It's not part of the problem. Is again, we're in Appalachia. Okay, so it's easy to go. It's just a bunch of drunk rednecks out in a fishing boat and. That whole thing, and 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 he did get confronted with that. You know, he said he was on a radio station in Detroit, and uh, somebody had basically said, "Well, you're all just a bunch of uneducated hicks. You don't know what you're talking about." Um, so that attitude happens. But here, uh, the mayor saw had a report reported sighting. One of the dispatchers, police dispatchers, went on record with it. Not all the police would go on record with it, by the way. Um, they were willing to to uh, tell their story to the sheriff, and then the sheriff imparted it to Danny. Um, we're talking about school teachers. We're talking about city officials. We're talking about, um, and then we're talking about just regular folks, you know, uh, motorists from out of town. You, you know, uh, I don't, I don't think I would call. I, w- I don't think I'd drive through an area with my family and decide I'd call the sheriff's office and pretend we got run off the road by a UFO. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, 
This reminds me of an interview. Uh, you haven't heard it yet because it hasn't got posted yet. But uh, with we did a show on the Beast of Boggy Creek, and it's similar in a sense where it's like these people. Why would they make it up? I mean, like, like you told the story about the guy who who worked with all the construction equipment, and he got harassed and stuff. Like these people aren't. You know, I'm sure some people make things up, but uh, you know, I just find it hard to believe that that it's just like systemic problem of people making things up because yeah, it doesn't it, really it, suit the the personality of the area i don't think no it certainly does not it's a very conservative place um it's the bible belt you know uh i i want to <laughs> i asked danny about that directly i said uh, you know it's a, it's a bible belt here and uh and you know well i guess some people will tell you that there are spaceships in the bible but uh, it's not typically taught in Sunday school, so what's the reaction around here? And he said, well, I'll tell you, um, this is a place where we would welcome any stranger, no matter what planet they're from. That's As Christians, that's what we're supposed to do. He said, uh, if they come from another planet, well, they're God's creatures too, and we need to treat them well. And he said, but if they try to hurt us, they would be responded to in kind. That's the place we're talking about. So, and it's, it's, um, and that means you're dealing with people who are, are honest and decent first. Their instincts are to be welcoming. Their instincts are to be, um, helpful and, um, and solid. But it is a conservative place. Yeah. It is not, you know, it's not full of, of, um, of outlandish characters. Although they did show up in Withville. <laughs> yeah. And There's some pretty weird stories with that. Well, I thought it was interesting too. Uh, you mentioned in the in in the materials that you sent me that I mean we're not just talking about a UFO event here too. Uh, there's other weird stuff sort of starts to happen along the way, right? I mean, there's like a lizard man sighting or something, right? Yes, there is, and um, I have not been able to trace down um, the actual uh, person, but. Well, there were a couple of things, and again, there's no reason to think that these would be folks that know each other, but um, there was a postal worker whose car was damaged by, um, was scratched up and damaged as she drove down the road, supposedly at about 35 miles an hour. When she reported it, she reported that she was being chased by a bipedal lizard, a large lizard-like creature that took a swipe at her car. Again, this is a story that was told to me through Danny, but it was also confirmed by um, Paul Dellinger, who's the uh, he had heard it too, and he's a reporter for Run Up Times. That and now we're talking about a postal worker who's you know she's not crazy. She has a regular job. She has no history of doing this. She didn't come back a week later and start talking about Venusians. It was an event. Something happened yeah. with that woman. So. Meanwhile, Danny gets, this is another one of these knock at the door things, or a phone call in the middle of the night. He gets a call from a guy who says, um, I gotta tell you this story. I won't use my name, but you are the one, since you're reporting all this, and you know, try to imagine the pressure of that. People calling all the time going, I have to tell you this story. I can't tell anyone else. I can't tell my family, or I can't tell my, you know, my boss. Nobody can know my name, but you can know it. Right, so right, and they and they need and they need answers too, and you, you don't have any answers. Exactly. That's the other frustrating part of it, you know, it's like, well, what do you think? And it's like, yeah, at some point you just sort of throw your hands up. You're like, I don't know, dude. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think it's because you know he was getting all this information. People must assume that well, he's got the real story somewhere, and uh, or maybe he, maybe I'm not the only one. Well, 
the story I was going into was the, supposedly a, a man from Smith County, which is I think a, one county south of With With County, um, very rural, claimed that there was an entire race of lizard people living in a cave down there. And uh, Danny said, "Well, you know that's." kind of out there and can you can you prove it and the guy said uh i could take you there but uh I'm, as i recall the story he said uh, i don't want to go i'm afraid so you know he would get these stories and uh there was a fella you want you want to go into the weird ones because we're oh yeah, yeah. There's, a, there's a bunch of them and we're about an hour in i think so um there was one guy that showed up out of nowhere, he came walking off the highway, um, and dressed in uh, uh, sort of tattered military fatigues or, or worn military fatigues. And uh, Danny describes him as looking like an Egyptian, kind of tall, thin, um, same sort of uh, facial structure, dark features, um, dark hair, and uh, having a bit of an odd demeanor. This guy claimed that he was uh from Fort Hood uh which is in Texas and that he had walked there um, <laughs> and he literally walked off the highway and then walked off again showed Danny a bunch of papers told him that um this was all part of a secret project and uh and some other crazy things and then after a while he just left you know and Danny said he'd never let me quite look at everything you know he'd show them to me flash them a little bit and not and that was it hmm. And then they move on. Um, he had a psychic, uh, and a couple psychics get in touch with him. And there were many people, either in these conferences he had or, um, you know, who would turn to him and say, you're the center of this. And uh, he had a psychic who told him that he was the center of this, that all of these events were revolving around him because he was special, because he had already had contact. He was going to be... Apparently, this uh, gateway for uh, you know the new age, or whatever, and that's another thing we didn't talk about. Um, people forget this, but in '87, in uh, I guess late August, early September, somewhere around there, in '87, there was something called the Harmonic Convergence. I don't know if you've ever heard about this. Yeah, but. yeah, yeah. It's a, it's when all the planets supposedly line up. And, yeah, it was sort of like a. Like a mini 2012 type of thing going on. Exactly. It was going to be the age of Aquarius. And uh, one of the things that uh, was supposed to happen is that uh, we were going to get contact and you would see a lot of UFOs and there would be more UFO sightings. So the next big one after the convergence happened in Whistle. So this was drawing people who were looking for such events. So... You know, you have to imagine a situation where people who expect to to see um, UFOs land, and then they open the newspaper and they find out, hey, the UFOs are here. Uh, well, they don't, uh, you know, that that's that's like a ringing the dinner bell. They're going to come running. Exactly. Um, yeah. And uh, so he had that sort of thing, and a psychic had told him that that he had. Uh, he had been abducted. Danny claims, you know, I, I don't. If I have been, I don't know about it. Um, but uh, he said you've been abducted, and you've, I've met you on the spaceship. He had one psychic who told him that he would be uh, eventually. This would all resolve for him when he would be taken to a secret base in Colorado, where the 
survivors of the Challenger uh, space shuttle disaster were being kept alive. What? Yeah. <laughs> the woman we're talking about here uh, had on her, I think she had on her license plate ICUFOs, and she came in and said uh, she had a, she was staying in a hotel, and she said, well, come to the hotel, I'll give you a, a reading, a psychic reading. And he said, you know, I had tried everything, and I wasn't too comfortable with it, but I thought I'd try it. Well, she goes into a trance, apparently an open-eyed trance, and um, she starts spouting this stuff out. And Danny's thinking, all right, this, when is she going to ask for money? What, you know, this is, this is, she's obviously faking. He starts waving his hand in front of her eyes, no movement. He decides to smack her on the, the leg to get her attention. Not really hurt her, but enough that she'd feel it. Right. Nothing happens. She keeps going. So then he gets right up in her face, and he's thinking, well, I'll just, I have got to do something disgusting. So he pretended to pick his nose and eat it. Oh, God. From, yeah, from her face. Because he's convinced she's faking. Never breaks the trance. Never stops. The whole thing. So whatever's going on for her is very, very real. And he couldn't get anything to, you know, shake out of that. And she's the one saying, well, you'll be in Colorado. Oh, here. <laughs> in an underground base. My goodness. Pardon the interruption, but I'm Mike Wilbon. Tony, more than 30 people in Stephenville, Texas, say they saw a UFO. You believe him? Tony Kornheiser, believe him. Who do you think was up there getting probed? You're listening to Banal of America Audio. I hope you're enjoying this commercial break. You're amazing. They're amazing? You don't even know who you're talking to, Poppy. You talk to them as if they're actually, if you know, as if you could see them. Uh, yeah, they're, they're watching us. <laughs> but you're not watching them. Now, I guess, because we're sort of like flying like a wildly all over the place a little bit here, so sort of let's, let's bring it, I guess, to the, not the conclusion of the interview, but the conclusion, I guess, of the story in a sense. I mean, this mm-hmm. keeps building up. He's trying to get answers. He's getting way too many contacts from people. Sort of like, how does this all wind down in a sense for him? Because clearly, like, did the UFOs go away? I mean, how no. how, how did it all sort of wind no. down for him? They did not. And he, uh, I, th- I think there's a lot of places that there were, it was attempted closure. And, uh, and then things, but as you know from uh, talking to UFO people once they've had the, these weird events, it's not something you can just forget. It's not like, you know, oh, my my team lost the football game. I'm going to feel bad about that for a week. Right. <laughs> you know, right. it's like it changes your reality. So he, I think he made many attempts to wrap it up, first by trying to get information, secondly by trying to draw people together who had other experiences to get some answers. That didn't happen. Then when um, he tried to get away from it as a story, but people kept coming to him. Uh, about it. And he was getting invitations like the Edgar Casey Institute had him come and speak, I think during the early summer of 88. Um, and uh, so it, even when he was trying to stop it, it was very difficult to do it because people were still interested. Right. There were people calling him up still. Um, there's the weird Kansas doctor story where the doctor tells him and this, I know I'm jumping around here, but this is the way the story really is. It doesn't really stop. It doesn't really have a definitive endpoint. Um, the doctor calls him up and says, uh, I'm, I'm in contact with aliens, and they uh, they can see you through a hologram. And Danny says, well, okay, prove it. He says, okay, think of something about yourself that no one else knows. 
and uh, I will talk to the aliens. They'll tell me what that is. And he's like, okay. <laughs> well, Danny has a, on his left hand, he has a, a place where um, he has, it's like little red scar marks where uh, he has too many blood vessels. And um, it's a, probably about the size of a, like a an old half dollar, you know, maybe twice the size of a quarter, something yeah. like that. And um, the guy calls him back, and he says, um, "You have this condition of too many blood vessels in your right arm. He got the wrong, the arm wrong, but he gave it to him, the location and the the size of the scarring to the millimeter." Huh. And Danny's over the phone. And Danny's like, well, you got everything right, but you got the wrong hand. Guy gets off the phone for a second, comes back, or gets off the phone, comes back, and he says, okay, I got it figured out. That's because the aliens are using a hologram, so they're seeing everything inverted. Weird. Very <laughs> weird. So, you know, he may be trying to stop the story, but it keeps following him. Yeah. Um, so uh, now I guess the next point where it starts to, uh, seems like it's going to wrap up, is... Uh, in 88, in the summer of 88, he and um, the reporter, Paul Dellinger, decide we're going to write this out because Danny's continuing to see things. He has a whole chapter in his book. The book is called Don't Look Up. And as you can guess from the title, it's really, you know, it's a suggestion to everybody, don't look up. One of the one of the things that people, Especially people who are, don't want to entertain the idea of UFO, the UFO phenomenon say as well. It's all, it's people who want attention. It's people who are trying to make money. They're getting rich off of that. None of that crap happens. Yeah. You know, you get attention, but you don't get attention you want. Exactly. Uh, nobody wants to live that kind of life. So, uh, uh, he writes this book, Don't Look Up. And I think that was part of the closure for him. But, Somewhere, and I wish I could nail down the time, because I, I want to say it was even after the publication of the book, but before Unsolved Mysteries came there. Unsolved Mysteries came in 91. Mm-hmm. Somewhere in there, uh, his son was shot uh, in the head. And uh, it was at a uh, – they didn't talk about this for a long time, but he's talked about it on tape with me, and I feel okay telling this story, but uh, – Apparently his son was at a party and they were drinking and uh, they when he he woke up uh, 21 days 23 days later something like that and uh, coming out of a coma in a hospital and somebody had put a bullet a gun to his head supposedly oh my God. yeah now what's weird about it is there's more than one story about how this happened when this was initially reported to the police um, the other uh, kids that were there, they were kind of, you know, young 20s, teenagers, that sort of thing, and they've been playing around uh, with a gun, supposedly playing some version of Russian roulette with a dummy shell, um, and drinking heavily and, and partying and just doing dumb things that kids do. And yeah. When the police came and they got the initial report, the initial report was that a couple guys dressed in black came in and put the gun to his head and shot him and walked out. Then they changed that story and said that he had shot himself. Hmm. So um, Danny's pretty convinced they know what really happened. Um, and it may have been related, you know, it may not be some men in black story. It may have been related to um, uh, there was a local kind of drug dealer that uh, seems to have been connected with this as well. 
a guy who liked to refer to himself as Charlie Manson, so you can imagine what a wonderful character that would be. Yeah. 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 (laughs) So that at that point, I guess if we're looking for a stopping point, that's kind of a stopping point because what Danny said to me was at that, it had just gotten so bad that my quest for answers, I couldn't carry it on. Now, he does not believe that his UFO hunting had anything to do with the shooting of his son. Um, but I, he also says openly it would kill him if it did. So he just, oh, wow. he, and that's where he stopped, you know, like he stopped looking. Uh, a couple of years later in 91, uh, Unsolved Mysteries came and uh, it kind of opened it up again. And um, the truth is people are still seeing weird things. I have actually talked to a guy um, who has built a tower uh, it was about a 12-foot tower outside of his house, and we taped an interview with him. And uh, he goes out every night, and um, he climbs this tower. And every night there's not raining or snowing. He's out there looking and taking photos and shooting video. And uh, most of what he has is pretty clearly military, and he knows it. He can identify with it. Yeah. A few things that are kind of hard to identify. So there's folks out there who are still seeing all a whole variety of things. And I hope I'm not, that's not an invitation for every weirdo in the world to go to Whistle. <laughs> Leave those poor people <laughs> If they find something, they'll let you know. <laughs> they'll let you know. Wow. So, and, and, but you can imagine too though, I mean, that happens to your son and it's like, you kind of have to take stock and, and reevaluate what's important, you know, because I'm sure like, a lot of, time and energy really had to go into helping his son recover from this accident or whatever it was. So it's like, yeah. you know, UFOs at that point, I think, have to take a backseat. Yes. And um, and I, I think, um, you know, his for a while, his family split up. Um, his wife moved to a different place. And, and it wasn't my impression of this is that it was a mutual agreement and it was just you, I'm being drawn into this, and I can't stop it, but you guys need to be somewhere else so that you're not getting worried about phone calls all the time. And right. So he did a lot to try to normalize his situation. And, and I think, you know, he said that's about the time he just stopped looking. But he has also said to me that it's 25 years, and he had, he had always said he was going to figure this out before he, before he left this world. So, um I think he'd want that, but uh, you know, Danny's a great guy. He's not. He's not going to risk his. I don't think he was risking his family. I think um, that he was just doing his job, and I think he was just doing what people should be entitled to do. And um, who, you know, whether he, the shooting of his son, it, you know, it probably was not related to this, but it seemed to be. You know, I'll put it to you this way. Uh, the Globe tabloid, you know, this was one of the. Competitors with uh, yeah. with uh, National Enquirer ran a uh, a story uh, with the headline uh, "UFOs Ruin My Life," and uh, Danny said to me when we were looking at that headline, he said, "Well, they didn't ruin my life, but they sure made it difficult." And uh, I think that was kind of what was going on. What it, it you know, if you look at your own life, if I look at my life, I can see that there are, are, are cycles in that in my life where I have cycles of really good years and really bad years and really good, you know, times, really bad times. Yeah. That's just kind of the way life is. 
it seems anyway, as an outsider watching that, that UFO thing kind of propelled him to, into a different part of his life and, and eventually it just became too much to try to, to, to pursue it and keep up with it. And the toll was too great. Too great on him, too great on, probably on his family. You know, and I, and I will say I'm forced to, I didn't live that life with him. So I'm talking as an observer. Right, you know? right. But it's easy to see how it would be just too much to deal with, uh, Absolutely. You know. And you know, here's the other thing too, uh, and this is the thing that, again, you just don't see it very much in these UFO docs. He's got to go to work every day. Right. You know, he's got to pay bills. He, he, his, the mundane day-to-day uh, aspects of life don't stop just because you've had this weird experience. You still have to pay your electric bill. You still have to put food on the table. Um, you can't just drop out of society, and you can't just, uh, you know, uh, hide from it. So uh, that's another factor in this, is, which is that, um, you know, on one hand, he's a reporter, and he's a reporter by instinct and a reporter by training, so he wants to know the answer. Everything's got to have an answer. But on the other hand, the practical reality is it can take every bit of your mental and emotional uh, energies, and you can't give every bit away. To something that's just going to drain you. Right. It's like a black hole because you really don't get. It's like goes back to that thing with about the UPI thing. It's like no matter how long you chase, you never can get to the bottom of this thing. You exactly. Know? It's driven many people. You know, it's driven people to to all kinds of uh, of, of dire states. Uh, yeah, I often history. think that maybe you know we maybe we what we should be studying right now is not so much. The UFO thing, but the UFO, the weirdness that surrounds <laughs> what it does to people, right. and the sociological phenomenon of it. Um, you know, and you get uh, like, look at a place like Roswell, which has uh, turned it into, um, you know, uh, a kind of a money making. There's a UFO museum on every corner, and you know, and they have big festivals and all of that. So there's that aspect of of this phenomenon. You know, even I love it when people say, "Well, they they aren't real." Um, you know, you can't if you can't if you can't put your finger on it. If you can't, you know, if it's not solid, hard nuts and bolts or whatever. If you can't, if it doesn't land on the White House lawn. If you, if you don't show me that, I don't believe it's real. I was like, "Well, okay, I can't show you love. Um, love's real. I can't show you thoughts and ideas. They're real. They have an impact." Right. Um, exactly. I can't. You know, it's kind of like uh, measure. Most of what we know about quantum physics is not based on anything we see. It's measurements we take from what we don't see. You know? yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so it's it's there is a real phenomenon going on, and it does have a real impact on people. And it's a varied impact because you know some people in Withville, uh There's a guy I interviewed uh, uh, named Richard Philippi. He's um, a took him. He didn't want to be interviewed either. He wanted to share everything he had with me. He didn't want to be interviewed at first, and then his wife said, oh, just do it. But uh, <laughs> And he was a good interview, but he was a local business owner, and um, they uh, made a small temporary fortune selling T-shirts at, uh, that said, uh, Withville, Virginia, UFO capital of the world. And uh, so you had that kind of reaction going on as well. And I think everybody took, again, it's a pretty it's kind of a laid-back, conservative uh, community that's very, very grounded, very, very grounded people. So they were able to take it in stride and have some fun with it. But by the same token, there wasn't a lot of, you know, oh, that guy's a nut, that guy's a nut, 
Let's Except go. everybody was seeing it. Right, right, exactly. It's like it's, it must be just frustrating in general for the town too, because you know they're all flummoxed by it in a sense. Yeah. You know, so it's very I strange. The, I think the town in general, probably ninety percent of the people, and and pretty much everybody I have personally talked to, believe that it is some what they were looking at was some kind of military project um, experiment that was going on. And um, it may have been not just an experiment of mechanics, but also of psychology. Uh, there might have been, uh, you know, projection experiments going on. Yeah, that's what I was just thinking, in a sense, where it's like we're saying that we need to look at the sociology of it. Maybe that's what they were doing 25 years ago. It very well could be. It very well could be because uh, um, I, I don't think anybody's saying nothing happened. Because this story reminds me a lot of uh, Paul Benowitz's story in the Project Beta saga, sort of like someone who unwittingly get in way in over their head on this UFO stuff. Yeah, and it, and it sure, you know, could be. I, I certainly, you know, of course, Danny Gordon wasn't an insider, though, and he certainly didn't volunteer for it, but there is that element to it. And you got to wonder, I, when I go through the list, you know, I, I talk to uh, – I talked to uh, a couple, uh, Mike and Judy Hall, and uh, she is a school teacher. He has runs the um, the social services for the whole county. Okay, so the, we are talking about. She's been a school teacher for thirty years there, and he's run social services for thirty years there. These are really solid members of the community, and uh, they had an extended sighting back in '87. They were very willing to talk to me about it. And what they described was a uh, a large uh, white glowing sort of object that hovered for a very long time. Their neighbors came out. They all watched it. Again, nobody took a photo. I said, did you even think about it? He said, no, we just we couldn't take our eyes off this thing. And uh, um, and then when it was gone, it was funny because he said he'd gone out to walk the dog that night and it was there and then, you know, they called around the neighbors. Everybody came and looked at it. And then the next night he kind of went out and sort of expected it to be there again. <laughs> you know, like, uh, oh, well, that, and cause it happened for a long time. It's like 30 minutes or so. Yeah. They just sat and watched this thing hover. And then it was gone. Well, maybe that's part of it. It doesn't seem like a conventional craft. It's really hard to try to figure out what the purpose of hovering that long would be. Maybe it's to see what the reaction is. Who knows? And again, there are a lot of maybes. A lot of maybes. Right, right. It's, and it could be, you know, I, I know a lot of the, that there was always concern, uh, about, you know, Russians and stuff like that and the UFO community being, having spies in it, if you will, uh, who were really saying they were looking for UFOs but were actually, you know, trying to document whatever weird stuff was in the sky to send back to Russia so they could figure it out based on you know, spy information. You know what I mean? Yeah, that is actually a possibility. Uh, Danny claims that at one point um, the sheriff's office did get a phone call from the National Guard saying, we are doing uh, joint military exercises with the Russians in this region. So be aware of that and do not interfere with that. And if you get any reports, just tell people that it's nothing to worry about and it'll be over in a few weeks. Now, I don't know. But you talk about that, and it just so happens that supposedly there was a joint military exercise between Russians and Americans. This is 1987, man. <laughs> this is Reagan still in office. This is still evil empire. 
Right. I don't know. I mean, it sounds crazy to me that that would be the case. But then again, once you get into this, everything sounds starts to sound either very crazy or very normal, one of the two. Right, right. Well, it all gets so, like, twisted. And I've talked about this before where it's like we're talking about a whole era now in these late 80s that you just don't know. It's you can't you can't pull apart what's ours and what's theirs anymore as far as UFOs and secret government craft and stuff. It makes the whole mystery even more complex. It's not as easy as it was like in the 60s or something like that when it was like you, you could be like 90 percent sure it wasn't a secret craft. Now it's like we have no idea. Yeah, and it's very well. You know, we all know now about the drone project, um, but uh, that was top secret stuff. And if you had mentioned that 15 years ago, even though they were working on it, um, they, everybody would have said, no, no such thing exists. And, um, you know, and now we know that uh, one of the drones had actually crashed in Iran, what, about a year ago, two years ago? So there's, they're probably working on that, developing their own version of it. Um, maybe they have been all along. So when you get into that sort of realm of, uh, you know, what's the phrase now, cryptopolitics or what? Oh, parapolitics, yeah. Parapolitics, yeah, you get into parapolitics and it's just, there. everything's possible. Uh, <laughs> and so you have to kind of just take a deep breath and go with what you, you can access immediately and just use your gut, that's it. Yeah, exactly. Now, you never, uh, you didn't finish the story here on this, uh, Convery guy, and I, I thought it was worth mentioning because it's so strange. This is the guy that went out on the first trip, uh, it was, it was, um, I'm looking at the thing here now, I don't, I don't, it was, uh, Gordon. Yeah. Hall, it was the photographer who disappeared or subsequently bailed, I guess you could say, on the, yeah. on the project. And then, uh, this guy, Andrew Convery, just to refresh people's memories, this is the guy who allegedly like motorcycled through the winter six yeah. hours on a little moped to get to the thing. Then he does some other weird stuff we never even got back to. So I guess tell, tell us about that. Well, um, one of the things that Convery uh, did was he kind of inserted himself as um, an expert in a way that, you know, one of these guys that stands around implying he knows the answer but can't tell you the answer. Yeah. Um, so um, one of the things he did was, and I don't think anybody really kind of fully trusted him. Um, and in fact, they actually kind of went out looking for UFOs without him at one point just simply because they weren't sure about him yet. Um, and uh, they had uh, – Convery um, said to Danny at one time that uh, uh, that uh, this was probably a CIA agency. Uh, project, you know, uh, some kind of CIA um, uh, project that was going on, and that uh, they had a well. Convery claimed anyway. His explanation was it was a the a, a government project that was going that was done through the CIA, and something had crashed. And what they were seeing was a lot of retrieval vehicles out there trying to to find this thing. So um, at one point, Danny asked him, you know, are you are you telling me you're with the CIA? And he just gave him that little, the grin, you know, the knowing look that you see. <laughs> like, I can't tell you, but you know what I'm thinking. And, um, the, and you know, and uh, it's interesting that as soon as actually Convery got off the phone with him, he got a phone call. Danny got a phone call. 
this was before Convery got down. Then he got a phone call that says, uh, you're going to be visited by somebody with the CIA. And they're not going to tell you it's them, but just keep an eye out for it. So <laughs> what do you do with that? Um, and he also had, uh, you know, he had um, basically, um, as I say, inserted himself uh, in the uh, into the, the process without being asked. That's right. another weird thing about the same with Stember. They kind of called out of nowhere, and um, they just said, can we be a part of this? Can we be a part of it? And it's kind of weird that, you know, they would even want to. But um, Stember, come, I mean, um, Convery came in, and, uh, you know, he claimed that he had uh, a bunch of inf- inside information. Uh, but as is common in the UFO thing, that was also, I can't really tell you what it is, but I can suggest to you what it is and you don't need to worry this is all military but I can't prove it but, you know yeah. and uh, at one point I think during this conference he kind of uh, tried to take it over with the voice of authority but you know it's more that that vague voice of authority you hear all the time in UFO stuff I know yeah so that's it and there's not much he seems to have um, you know gone back to Norfolk and as I recall Danny did try to track him down again and I've looked for him. I haven't seen anything yet, but uh, that I haven't gone far enough on that yet. I would yeah. think that somebody like that is fairly easy to find. So. Well, this is such a strange sort of like flap, if you will. But you never really, like I said, I I really hadn't heard much about it at all. Why do you think it's sort of fallen through the cracks of mainstream ufology, if you will? Uh, I think one reason is that it doesn't have the sensational aspect that earmarks it. Uh, uh, it doesn't have a clear focal defining point. Like a signature, um, sort of a signature event, if you will. Or exactly. Like that. If if you look at um, the Benny and, uh, or the Barney Hill case and, and Betty and Barney Hill, um, well, you've got this narrative that revolves around uh, just two people and um, it uh, has, it's got a linear sort of storyline and it's got a really interesting um, you know, focal point, which is the abduction. Right. And, and then everything else that comes out of it, her star maps and all that stuff that come out of it, that is, that just feeds it. But there's a, you can focus on it. There's a specific date. It's a one time of it. So, you know, here's another problem. Again, thinking sociologically, one thing that humans want to do, we're driven to do this, is find, quote, the answer. Right. And it's a lot easier to for, to find the answer when you have a sharp focal point. So in this case, you had droves of sightings, and there, none of them, you know, there are, there are several that report three white lights and a red light. The red light will either seem to be towing the white lights or joining or disappearing into them and then leaving again, like a shuttlecraft of some sort. That's a common sighting. Then you had... Uh, classic flying saucers. Danny said he saw one rise into a cloud and just never come back. Um, then you have the uh, the flying boxes and you have the the triangles. Uh, then you have the crazy orange box and the floating bus sightings, which are so totally bizarre that you you know they're not even aerodynamic. So what do you do with that? Yeah. Um, and uh, so you. It becomes very hard to pin it down and get it into a neat little storyline. And, and because we like a narrative as a species and we like to have a, 
a focal point to find, quote-unquote, the answer, whatever that is. I don't believe there is a single answer to anything. Um, so uh, I think that's part of it. I also think that the military explanations were um, good for the press. That's what all they needed. Uh, it's it's kind of interesting that Unsolved Mysteries would come back and, and do it again, and I think, you know, Danny had a nervous breakdown at one point in this whole thing. Um, he had just gotten to be so much that he had a heart attack. And, um, oh, God. And, or, well, he didn't have a heart attack. He had symptoms of a heart attack. Yeah. He just basically had a nervous collapse. They took him to the hospital, and uh, and it just turned out that he was just so he wasn't eating right. He wasn't sleeping right. He had all these things. Well, so if you watch the Unsolved Mysteries episode, which is actually pretty decent, um, you'll see that they kind of lead to that as a as the breaking point, the focal point. But that's really not it. You know, really the sightings continued and really lots of other stuff happened. So I think that that's one thing. Um, I also think that, like I said, the military explanation was good enough for a lot of people. I, I also think that the town itself, um, for most people, it's even people who sighted these objects, um, they saw them once, twice, maybe a few people saw them five, ten times. But their lives went on. And it's, uh, like I said, a sort of a conservative country place. And there are jobs to be done. There's work to be done. Right. So uh, with a smaller population base, you don't have a lot of people pushing it. Oh, or a little interesting side note, though. Just, this just occurred to me. Um, According to Paul Dellinger, the reporter, uh, Richard Hoagland actually work, uh, lived there at the time. Interesting. Yeah, and I, I have, I've tried to get in touch with him, and it hasn't happened for me yet, but, um, and I don't know, but um, one of the questions we asked was, were people, did you find that people were jealous of you for having cited this thing? And, uh, Dean said, no, not not really. But then Paul came up. He said, well, I do remember one fellow named Richard Hoagland who came <laughs> and said, I, you know, I wish I had seen that. <laughs> Forgotten the exact story. But, uh, oh, weird. Uh, yeah, isn't that weird? Uh, it's but, like one uh, of those is a small world things. Yeah, absolutely. But, see, there wasn't, you know, Richard Hoagland moved on. And so there wasn't, and Danny, they wrote the book, I think they wrote the book in part to close it out, but see, Danny couldn't report on what was happening to him personally. His personal life was not going to be a news story, and yet he had all these things happening to him. You know, he had a he had a woman who was the wife of a senator, I believe, maybe a representative, we have this on tape, it'll be in the film, but who claimed that she had been visited her entire life by cat aliens, aliens with cat faces. Wow. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> it just it just keeps coming, and uh, you know, I, when I try to personally put the linear timeline together, it's very very hard to do because all these things were swirling around for months on end. So uh, I think that's what that's part of the reason why. Right, and it gets like for for Danny, it's like uh, not only are you inundated with these UFO reports, but then you start getting even weirder stuff. Mm-hmm. And you don't know really where to draw the line, I'm sure. Well, you can't, like, you don't, you, you don't have the choice of drawing the line. <laughs> like, that, the, whatever people are gonna tell you, they're gonna tell you, and it just gets weirder and weirder. So. Right. It's like. Right. At some point, well, and, you wonder what the hell you're gonna do with all this. <laughs> yeah, and I'll give you another, I'll give you another sort of example of this from the story. He, 
at one point, uh, you know, he he felt like he was being followed by a military. He would be followed by black cars with military license plates on them, and you know, or a U.S. government license plates on them. And well, it's okay in Whistle, uh there was a, I mean, it's the inter- a point where two inter- interstates join, and there are, you know, lots of travelers and lots of military people stop over for the night or whatever. So this does actually happen there. Um, and he got so, but he got to the point where every time he was looking in his mirror, he felt like he was being followed by somebody, and he stopped carrying a camera and started carrying a gun. And then I, I you know, he, it just got to the point where he, he had to talk to himself and go, okay, what are you doing? What are you doing? You're walking around with the 357. This is getting crazy. This is getting dangerous. And, right. uh, I, I, uh, there was a NASA truck that showed up there. To, I haven't mentioned that, I guess. No, there some, no. There was a truck from Mark NASA that showed up and stayed there for a few days at least and then went on its way. And they just said it was, no, nah, it's no big deal. It just happens to be. You know, we're not, it has nothing to do with UFOs. <laughs> Don't look behind the curtain. <laughs> so who knows, you know? Um, and I think it would be very, very difficult for, for anybody to try to endure that. Um, and then, just so people know, Danny's a very stable guy. He's a, he seems to be, you know, uh, he doesn't tell me things. I look at him, I go, okay, you're a nut job. That doesn't happen. He's, um, uh, a contributor to his community is a very conscientious person and so uh maybe part of the story really needs to be that even though all this rotten stuff happened to him he's managed to um you know be a contributor to his society and a lot of people are you know right right well it's just uh, does he regret even sort of getting mixed up in all this or is he sort of at peace with what he what he you know the the pandora's box that he opened um I, you know, again, I'm speaking for him, but uh, we asked him a similar question, and his response was that if he had to do it over again, he'd think long and hard about doing it. Yeah. Which tells me that he he might do it because just because, you know, there's a truth aspect of this, but he might not just as well. And so it's really hard to say. So I don't think he Dave's not the kind of guy I, I see going through his life with a bunch of regrets. Uh, and no more than than any of us do. I mean, right. there's certainly, if I could go back, there's a lot of things I'd change and a lot of decisions I'd make differently. We, that's the way it is with everybody. But um, I don't think he regrets being involved in it so much as um, had he known and had a choice, he might have made a different choice. Right. He might have right. just made that report and not looked into it any further and just said, okay, well, thanks for your call and, and then let it go. And uh, but who knows? The way things were happening at that time in Whitfield may have been impossible anyway. It's interesting that sort of like he's alone in this in a sense too. You know what I mean? It yeah. was like it wasn't. It doesn't sound like that there were other people sort of shouldering the burden of of being the quote unquote UFO guy of the area. Yeah, there really weren't. Um, and uh, I talked to Roger Hall, who's his friend that was with him. For the first sighting, and I asked Roger, I said, well, how, how did this affect your life? And he just said, well, it really didn't affect my life that much. I had a couple sightings, and they were exciting, and they were kind of weird at the time, but I just, my life just kept going the same way. Right. It really didn't change it. 
um, Paul Dellinger, the the reporter, who also himself had a sighting, um, and he said uh, the same thing: is that uh, well, it was dramatic. I won't forget it, but it didn't change the course of my life. And I and I think it was just kind of a perfect storm for Danny. You know, one of those things where uh, in any time of crisis, we look for a voice of authority, and the most immediate voice is is the news. Whether right. we like that or not, um, I don't trust newscasts at all. And like I said, I've been a journalist. <laughs> I mean, I don't. You know that there's money behind it, and you know that editors and uh, they make selections. They choose what you're going to see, and and I'm sure that there are stories we never. See. Well, well, there's what well, there's a list every year of all yeah. the top hundred stories that you didn't see that were terrifying. You know. Meanwhile, we're watching. You know, we're seeing Britney Spears is pregnant again or something. Yeah, care. And uh, but that's really the way it is. And um, I think what happened in that case was Danny was the voice of authority, and uh, people just wanted answers. They just wanted answers. And so, being a reporter and being the kind of guy that he was, he was going to try to give them those answers. And uh, that was, you know, if it had happened uh, maybe in a bigger area where there were several news outlets, some of that would have been diffused. Right, right. You know? Yeah, that's what. I'm, yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, it's like. And but Withrow is it's um, it gets its television out of Roanoke mostly, and um, really only two two or three channels would have even come in at that point. Of course, they have cable, satellite, and all that now, but. But back in the back in those days, uh, even in rural areas where cable and satellite were, you know, maybe getting its their popular uh, because people didn't have options. Well, they only really most people only saw two channels there, and they were both coming out of Roanoke, and Roanoke's gosh about a hundred miles away, not quite, I guess. But so, and Roanoke's not a big city. Roanoke's, I think it. I, I don't know. I'm now I'm kind of talking out of my hat, but I want to say Roanoke. The whole city and county is 200,000 people, maybe. Oh, wow. So it's not big. Yeah. And uh, um, th- there's no other place to go, and I think that's part of what made him the center point. Um, How did he you know, slow down this freight train of people contacting him when he kind of got out of it? Was he just like, listen, don't, and eventually, like he said, you know, like, listen, don't con- contact me anymore. I'm not doing this anymore. And uh, Yeah, I believe that is the way it happened. And uh, now the... The sightings did have a peak, and then they kind of went away, and so there were, some of that did just sort of peel off naturally. But, um, you know, Danny says that even to this day, people kind of know that uh, he's he's out of it. Yeah. He's not, don't, don't really bother him with this. He, so, you know, I and I, please don't call Danny up and talk to him about UFOs. <laughs> he did his part for God and country, you know. Exactly. Let him go. Now that he's out of it and everything, but how, is, how did he, he end up coming? How did your path end up crossing, I guess, is the worst way Well, I now. contacted, yeah, that's a, and I even asked him on tape, why are you doing this? After hearing these stories, like, why on earth are you doing this? Um, to, to answer the first part, I, I you know, he's, I th- he said that he's doing it because he feels that after 25 years, with enough distance, um, it's time to tell the story, and maybe the story will prompt answers from some place we don't expect. And so uh, maybe there will be an answer to it, although I don't 
think he expects to ever get one, and I don't expect to ever really get one. Um, there's that hope. And I think he just wants to tell his story. He told me, you know, I contacted him actually a couple of years ago and said, uh, you know, I'm a documentary filmmaker. I live fairly close. I'd like to talk about this. And, and he said, well, maybe we'll see. And why don't you contact me in the future? And then I did. And then so we talked and he go, we, uh, you know, got to know each other before we, we started this project. Yeah. Um, and that's just the right thing to do. Um, uh, and he, uh, I think he just feels comfortable with us and, uh, handling it. Because I'm not gonna exploit the guy, you know, uh, my, um, uh, my film partner Chris Luzo is a great guy. He's not gonna exploit him, we're not gonna do that to, we live here, you know? Right. Um, so we're not gonna do that. And, uh, I think that, that makes a big difference too. If somebody had come in from, you know, New York or LA and said, we wanna, you know, do this and, we're gonna have all these guys come in, and we're gonna, yeah. we're, gonna you know, we're gonna recreate it, and we're gonna put this guy in military gear, and he's gonna follow you around and ask you a bunch of questions, and, you know, and we're gonna have a lot of flashy graphics, and exactly, you know, I yeah. think he would have gone, Mm-mm, no, that's not what I wanted. To. So I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that we're gonna tell the story without uh, the uh, embellishment. It really doesn't need it. You know, yeah. it really doesn't. I don't need to have crazy graphics and lots of uh, simulations, and uh, it's a lot. I tell you what, it's a lot more intense to watch this man tell his story and look in his eyes as he tells you these things. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Although, in, in 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 a lot of ways, it's like so many UFO stories are like, all right, here's a UFO event. You know, and and that's it, really. But this is almost like a whole different thing. This is like a cautionary tale, in a lot of ways. Of sort of like, be careful what you get into, because, you know, you don't know how deep this thing gets. Right, right. And um, it, it's sometimes you get those stories. Like I said, as a literary guy, a film guy, I collect stories in my head, and my I love them. Love mm-hmm. a good story, and when you look at some of these UFO stories, the ones that are cautionary tales, it, it seems like a lot of them have elements that make you just roll your eyes and go, "Okay, you had me until you know, yeah. until you got to the to the the, the alien shapeshifters and the laser <laughs> gun battle, you know, yeah. uh, until until we had uh, we got to level thirteen and. Darkon was there, or whatever, and uh, so there are there are those stories that you you get where it's like, oh, don't look in the cupboard, don't look in the cupboard, um, and uh, and then it's some something goofy, but uh, or something that's just too outlandish to believe, and this is a really believable story, you know, it really is a believable story. Yeah, and you know, I'll tell you something too. A lot of time, I always wondered, like, well, people who write books and do interviews or do TV or documentary, sometimes they're asked, like, well, do you believe these people? What do you believe? And it's fairly common to hear somebody go, well, I didn't take it too seriously until I actually sat down and talked with these people. Now I understand that. Now I understand that because I will sit and have lunch with people and we'll talk about sports and we'll talk about, um, you know, the the price of gas and we'll talk about this, that, and the other, and then we'll talk about UFOs. Right. And um, these 
are not people that have anything to gain. They're clearly, they, they don't change their tone or their attitude when they talk about UFOs. They don't go into storytelling mode. You know what I'm talking about? Like, yeah. they don't become a different person. They don't become some kind of practiced personality. And that lets me know that um, they really did uh, have a weird uh, sighting and experience. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Most people don't even want to share their UFO events, or they like. I'll, I run into two types of people: the ones who really want to tell you their story, and the ones who like reluctantly tell you their story. <laughs> right. The reluctant ones are usually better because at least you. I don't know. I feel like maybe you get a little bit more out of it almost because you because mm-hmm. there's something going on there. Like like if someone's really adamant and they want to tell you the story, you can't really do anything with that. But if they're really reluctant, you can kind of draw more out of it. Where you're like, well, why is this person? You know, why, why exactly yeah. don't you want to share the story? When you're when you're confronted with a person who's very theatrical in everything they you know and what they do, um, or, or what they tell you, you're always sort of consciously or unconsciously aware that you're getting a story told to you that and they've probably told a million times. Yes, and you <laughs> yeah. can hear elements that you go, well, I, I bet I bet that particular phrasing was the one you finally settled on, you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And it doesn't have to be UFOs. I mean, it can be anything. It, yeah. it happens in life all the time. Um, but when you get people who are just kind of opening up, uh, I this one this one fellow who's built this tower to watch for the UFOs, uh, he has got really emotional. And he believes, um, he's pretty convinced that we have advanced technology, we have plasma technology that would allow for space travel virtually without friction, and um, and uh, we can leave. He, he claims to have seen um, a uh, what he describes as a plasma field vehicle drop out of the atmosphere with a pop and then land, or not land, but come down and hover. And a matter of only a few seconds. And, you know, he's telling me this story. I'm not even sure what to make of it. Uh, dead serious, 100% serious, and getting very shaken up. And I asked him about it. I said, you seem to be very emotional about this. Why are you emotional about this? And he says, because if our government does have this technology and we're still sending up astronauts on rockets, then they are killing people with no good reason. Now that's a, I mean, I had never even thought about that. That's a perspective that never even crossed my mind. Right, right. But right. that tells you this is a guy, whether he's seeing anything or not, whether, you know, I can't, I can't quite vouch for what he, the stories he's telling me. But boy, he believes it and his heart's in the right place and he, he means it. And he's putting together a book on this. It's, it's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing what the experience has done to him. And done maybe for him, I'm not sure yet. Or to him. Or to him, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, well, it's, it's like you say his heart's in the right place. I'm sure he's a good guy, but then you, you, I guess you just kind of worry about people like that, too, because, like, at the end of the day, I feel like this is like a bottomless pit, this mystery. So it's like you you, you almost want to throw a rope to some of these people and be like, yeah. be careful chasing this stuff. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I, I think um, some of the... Um, Part of part of the problem is that uh, it's it's hypnotic, you know. And I've, when I was a kid, I had what I thought was a UFO sighting. I don't even think it, it, today. I realized that I was probably seven years old and watching a lot of Star Trek. 
Um, and so I don't, I probably saw something very conventional and, um, and I'm pretty sure that's what happened. So, uh, but I, I recall that fascination when it happened that like, oh, wow, I've seen a spaceship. Right. And, uh, you know, so part of it is that the experience that these folks seem to go through maybe is stronger than their good judgment and, uh, or their, or any judgment. Like I, like we were saying, the rational detached person goes, why didn't you take a picture of it? And to a person, everybody I've talked to, they have this crazy, not crazy, but they have this look on their face. It's like, you know, we never even thought about it. <laughs> we just couldn't stop looking at it. Right, right. And and I think that's the same thing that drives people deeper and deeper into it. How do you turn away from it? How do you turn it off? Um, I don't know. I don't know. And so, you know, I guess there is a beware. I certainly, it's funny, I mean, I, I personally... Nah, I don't want any UFOs landing in my backyard. <laughs> I don't oh, want it. <laughs> I don't. I want to, you know, I'm very happy to tell this story, but, uh, not, I don't want to be, uh, I don't, I don't envy Danny or, or people like him. Right, right. I'm, I'm, I'm of the same mindset. You know, I prefer a detached perspective on this because at the end of the day, I just, it's so complex that, that you have to have some perspective on it, I guess you could say. You know what I mean? Yeah, and it's very, very hard to. It. Yeah, it's very hard to, uh, um, to to treat that kind of stuff uh, with detachment if you're embedded in it. And uh, so, um, you know, and after a while, once you've had one really weird experience, who's to say what's 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 weird and what's not weird anymore? What's happening and what's not happening? Right, exactly, yeah, yeah. The more you get into this, like, it changes your reality. Yeah. Because we're dealing in a world of, like, possible spaceships from another planet and secret government test craft and shit that people just don't even deal with like in their everyday life. Well, I'll tell you, (laughs) uh, you know, and it seems like this would be something that, uh, we maybe should be taking more seriously, if nothing else, at the sociological, pers- you know, point of view. Oh yeah. But um, the whole thing um, has such a myriad of possibilities. And of course, you know this better than I do. That currently, um, interdimensionality is part of the possible answer, and alternative, you know, intersecting worlds and time travel and things that weren't even on the table in the '80s for most people. Um, and uh when you go into those realms then you're um you know it's kind of like walking around in a dream you have to react to what you see in a dream but it's you know whether whether it's real or not for anybody else it's sure as heck real for you the experiencer and uh, i think that's what makes it so hard to to come to any kind of conclusions. So there's a role for the detached observer. I think that's a very important role. Uh, the detached observer has the um, obligation to record what they see without being inside of it so that it can be studied. I just think that there, that uh, many people are just too quick to want to write it off to some simple answer, and I don't think it is simple. I think there, I think there's multiple factors going on. You know, right, right. Um, That's where I'm at too. Or in senses, oh, there's a whole bunch of different stuff going on. Because, I mean, you can't. It's like what happened here in 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 Whiteville. It's like, or was it with with Whiteville? Yeah. Whiteville. It's like uh, 
You got an orange box. You got balls of light. You got weird, like, motherships. I mean, are they all related? Are they, like, one showed up and the other one's, you know, like, the enforcer of the, of, of like, the, the laws of contact with, like, listen, you can't be down here, dude. You know, oh, shit, the, right. the orange box. You know, it's like right. there's so much going on that you don't really know exactly. Well, one of the things can't put that, it all together. One of the things that has occurred to me in this whole process is that, in a quest to find answers about the inexplicable, it exposes how human we are and what it means to be human, the kinds of things that humans do to solve problems or even perceive them. And let's, let's take it as a, the, the extraterrestrial hypothesis, just for, just for kicks. Let's assume that's what was going on. What would we do? We, we start looking at it and trying to interpret it based on our, our structures of thinking and our structures of behavior and our structures of interest. We, we're the ones that we think, well, they're, they're studying us. They're exploring us. They're, you know, they're, uh, why are aliens abducting people? Well, they're doing experiments because that's what we would do. Well, maybe none of that crap applies. Maybe, maybe none of that applies. You know? So if you have, let's say you have creatures from another, uh, planet visiting, they don't necessarily think like we do, and they don't necessarily have any interest in in uh, making contact with us, or, or or maybe they think they are doing. Who knows? You know. Right, right. Who knows? If you have intersecting dimensions, you, you know, say so you have a machine that can do that. We don't know what the the uh, if you could cross dimensions or cross times. It's, man, when I run my car, every time I run my car, I put uh, you know fumes in the air. There's a byproduct. So what's the byproduct of screwing around with nature like that? Well, maybe it's orange boxes. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, you raise an interesting point, too, where it's like the, whatever's behind the UFOs may be, may be completely, you know, they may have podcasts up, up there where they're like, why don't these people, like, why haven't they noticed us? I don't understand what they're doing down there. Like, we, we've been coming there, like, for years, and they never right. seem to acknowledge us. Why are they doing this? Right. There's a, uh, uh, this is kind of far afield, I guess, but my, there's a, uh, religious joke. There are not many religious jokes that are funny, but this, <laughs> there's one where a guy is, a, uh, he's in a, a, a town that's gonna be flooded, and, um, his neighbors come and say, we gotta evacuate, and he says, we, no, I'm, you know, I, I'm a man of God, God will save me, and I'm gonna stick it out here and just pray, and he, they say, okay, we're out of here. And so the waters come in, they rise up to the second floor of his house, and the boat comes by, you know, and says, come on, you gotta get in, the, the town's gonna be totally flooded out, and he says, no, I'm, I'm, I believe in God, and I'm praying to God, and God's gonna save me. They say, okay, we gotta go. So they go on out, and he gets up to the, the roof of this house finally, and, um, a helicopter comes by, and, He's, the helicopter is dangling a rope, you know, a ladder, trying to get him to come up. And he says, no, no, go on, God's going to save me. And at that point, the water rises up, and he, he drowns. So he goes to heaven, and St. Peter welcomes him there and says, oh, we've, we're, we're kind of surprised to see you, but we're glad you're here. And you, you, as a devoted man, you, you can have anything you want. What do you want? And he says, well, I'd like to talk to God. So he goes to talk to God, and God says, uh, he says to God, uh, I don't understand. I, I, for, I was praying to you. I was devoted to you my entire life. I, I, I did everything you asked, and you didn't save me. And God says, "Huh, that's funny. I thought I sent the neighbors and a boat and a helicopter." <laughs> yeah. And it could be that you know where we're just like that. Maybe 
maybe we are being spoken to. Maybe there was a little blinking light. Yeah, I think John Keel was pretty convinced that the light blinking was them trying to, whoever they are, trying to say hello, you know. Exactly. Well, I wonder if we ever get that conversation going. Now, what's the, we only got about 10 minutes here of time left on my thing, and, uh. We've gone a while anyway, so... Um, oh, yeah, I know. I've already told crazy jokes. So we got <laughs> what's the... I guess, what's the timetable for the film, and what can... I know you got a, an Indiegogo campaign, so, like, uh, plug that, and let us know what people can do to sort of help you get this thing, you know. I, it sounds like you're already well underway as far as doing the work on it, but, yeah. you know, what can people do to help sort of uh, speed up the process, I guess you could say. Well, we can... We do have a campaign on... Uh, a site called Indiegogo.com, I-N-D-I-E, gogo.com, and it's slash Strange Country. That's the name. I don't think we've mentioned this today, but it's the name of the film, Strange Country, a different kind of UFO film or documentary. And and uh, if people would like to contribute to that, um, we offer perks in exchange. Basically, you can pre-order the film. Uh, it's not like we're asking you to give money to you know for nothing it's we you can get copies of the film when it comes out you can get um posters uh you can get credits if you you know some people are are working on film careers and they want to put money into it they can get associate or executive producer credits on this and and a bunch of other cool things and um we'll have some stuff signed by danny as well so there's a lot of cool things that you can get and and be involved and um just go to the site and you can use PayPal, you use the credit card, whatever you want to do. I think we have about 60 days right now, uh, on the campaign. It's, it's really, we haven't pushed it much now, but now we're going to have to, to start. And so we appreciate every penny. The film, we anticipate getting it done, um, before October 7th, which was the original call-in date. I really would like, I think that actually is a weekend this year and, or close to it. And I'd like to yeah. premiere the film at that time. Um, and, uh, you know, we, the film will get done one way or the other. It's probably not a wise thing for me to say after asking for money. Because, <laughs> but it will get done. But it's a matter of will people be paid for the work that they're doing? Yeah. And will it be fair? There, I have a lot of devoted, we're a small company, basically we're two people, we can do everything ourselves, but it's much harder to do it that way. And it's so much nicer to be able to um, pay people. Uh, a lot of people are willing to work in independent film just for the experience or whatever, but um, we like to treat people well, and uh, and that requires some money. And, you know, we do have, have some funding available to us now, but... Um, this is going to help us finish up the project, you know, get um, uh, be able to buy lunch for people when they're working a 12-hour day and yeah. that kind of thing. So, and that, I think that's important. Absolutely, yeah, for sure. Now we usually sort of wrap it up with the sort of what's next for you, but this is sort of what's next for you. Have you thought about anything beyond Strange Country? As far as, uh, and I know you've obviously made a whole bunch of different films uh, of different subjects and stuff, but uh, right. have you thought about anything in the paranormal realm? beyond this film at the moment we haven't um we have a couple films coming out about um basically old time uh we've done some films on old time mountain music and we've got a couple that more that are would be coming out sometime this year so we're working on that simultaneously um i have thought about doing and this will probably happen at some point doing a short on um 
the mad gasser of uh, Botetourt County. Oh, wow. Are you familiar with that story? No, no. You've heard, I guess you've heard of the Mad Gasser of Mattoon in Illinois? I think so, yeah. All right, well, uh, ten years prior to that, in Botetot, which is right outside of Roanoke, there was a the original Mad Gasser attack. And uh, it was a family, there was a family uh, that uh, claimed, you know, they woke up in the middle of the night and their house, they thought it was on fire, it was being filled with some strange gas and... Um, most of the family was knocked out cold, and but one of them managed to wrap his. May I may have been a woman. I can't. I haven't looked this up. But she, you know, they get to the window and they see two strange figures, and one of them happens to be a woman in high heels, and they know because she left these weird tracks in the snow. And oh, weird. Nobody can figure out why this happened, but it, it it seems to have happened. But then what happened after that was. All of a sudden, you had a case where mad gasser attacks were being reported all over. Once the news broke, they were yeah. being reported all over the city. And I wouldn't mind doing something with that. I mean, that's a lot of people have heard of the Mattoon thing, but you know, I may be mispronouncing that. But but this one was in '33, as I recall. Oh and, boy! Uh, so it was it was uh, you know some people thought the one in Illinois had to do with um, war hysteria. But uh, this was 10 years before that war. So Interesting. All right. Well, we'll keep an eye out for that. And, of course, yeah. people should check out the website. Uh, we, we gave the Indiegogo. We'll have links to it all over uh, Banal of America as well. Uh, and it's uh, the, the also the film website, horsearcherproductions.com. And, uh, as I said, we'll have links to that as well. All one word, horsearcherproductions.com. You can watch the trailer there. We'll, we'll have all kinds of links to it and stuff. So people should definitely check it out. I, I was really impressed uh with the trailer you guys have up there, and the story is so bizarre that that really uh, it's captivating. I can't wait to see the film um, and really sort of see see this sort of told uh, through Danny's voice and through his eyes and, and how it all affected him. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. We appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. And it's not just Danny. There, we've interviewed many other people, but it comes down to the effects that this had on a person. I've had a, I've had contact with a few people who've told me, you know, it's, they think it's important because um, you know you have a different levels of experiencers uh, people who have seen UFOs or been abducted or whatever and they're you know they're kind of lost too they're kind of drifting out there too yeah. and um, uh, I think it's if nothing else it documents the fact that um, these these things don't happen in a little bubble on history channels you know for a half hour and then and then go away they aren't some for the people who go through them they're very difficult experiences exactly they carry it with them through the rest of their lives yeah well sean i can't thank you enough for coming on the show uh you know i really appreciate you reaching out to me and and uh was more than happy to have you on the program and, and bring this story to light uh for more people and i wish you the best of luck with the uh with the filming and with the campaign and and please keep us posted and let us know uh the status of the film and, and when it all rolls out I sure will, and when when uh, we have you know more information about it, I'll let you know, and uh, you can let your listeners know. Absolutely, that'd be great. All right. Well, thanks again for coming on the show. No problem, man. Thank you. That does it for this edition of BOA Audio Season Seven. Big big thanks to Sean Cotts for coming on the show, giving us so much time, and providing just a wealth of information concerning the 1987 UFO flap in Withville, Virginia. You can find out more from Sean at the website, 
archerproductions.com. And if you want to help facilitate the making of Strange Country, a different kind of UFO documentary, head on over to the Indiegogo page at indiegogo.com slash strangecountry and make a donation. At the Indiegogo page and or Sean's website, you can see the trailer for Strange Country and get a look at what they've got so far. It is tremendous stuff, and I personally cannot wait to see the completed version of the film. Hopefully, the many, many great BOA Audio listeners who have helped out this program will dig a little bit into their pockets and help out Strange Country as well. Indiegogo.com slash strange country check it out moving right along now it's time for boa audio listener feedback and we have got several emails here to read my friends and just about all of them pertain to the william zabel interview from last week i was just inundated with feedback from the boa audio listeners regarding the William Zabel appearance last week on the program. Tons and tons of feedback. First of all, a tremendous amount of feedback on the BOA forum, theusofe.com. I could not even do that one justice. So if you want to get in on the conversation there, head on over to the BOA forum where there is a lively conversation going on regarding the William Zabel interview. Additionally, there were many posts on my Facebook page concerning the William Zabel interview, and one in particular really stood out, and I promised the author that I would read it here on Listener Feedback and Respond. It comes from Travis, No Hometown Listed. Here's what he has to say. I'm quite familiar with many of the elements presented in this interview. The conflicting reports, other shooters alleged to have been witnessed, timelines being wrong. Students seeing bodies in places there weren't. Students seeing more dead bodies than there were, etc. There is another person, Evan Long, who brings up the exact same material. Adam Foss, a survivor, even wrote in a May 2nd, 1999 article that while he was escaping the cafeteria, he saw a dead girl's body face down in the water in the cafeteria. And several witnesses also saw dead bodies piled on the cafeteria stairway. While these reports are very intriguing and very confusing and demand answers, once a conspiracy theorist claims it's all an evil satanic and mind-control conspiracy, herp derp, the whole town of evangelical Christians are evil satanists in a secret cult, all the victims' parents knew what was going to happen and killed their kids in a satanic sacrifice, then all credibility flies out the window for anyone with a lick of common sense. I also find it highly, highly, highly disrespectful to claim that the victim's parents were in on it. I personally know one family of one of the victims, and I was utterly disgusted to hear such a disrespectful accusation hurled at the victim's families. While I'm intrigued by all the conflicting reports, people witnessing other shooters, timelines being wrong, students seeing more people dead than there were, and in places there never were any bodies, etc., I'd love to see someone make a more credible report on it without all of the satanic cult mind control speculation thrown into the mix, which destroys any real credibility on the topic. I'd even go so far as stating that polluting this data 
with all of the satanic cult and mind control nonsense, sounds like a disinformation ploy to discredit the evidence. Because the two people who brought it up and presented it, the odd data is in the reports for anyone to find, however, go the satanic cult and mind control route, which kills it on a credible level. Travis. Thank you so much, Travis, for your well-written and well-thought-out response. You can really feel the passion from Travis in his feedback there. Really what stood out to me was how taken aback he was, or upset, I guess you could say, by the claims from William Zabel that the victim's parents were in on it. As he says, he found that highly, highly, highly disrespectful. And I can tell you that, personally, I really struggled with the choice to use that particular quote at the beginning of the program. I vacillated on that back and forth quite a bit before I released the show. But in the end, I erred with the decision that really that summed up William's conspiracy as a whole. He really sees this thing as an all-encompassing conspiracy to really radical levels, and I thought that captured it better than just about anything he said on the program. But I knew that it was such a loaded statement, and it really did make me quite uncomfortable. So when I saw Travis's post on my Facebook wall, it resonated with me in a big way, because he sort of touched on something that was in my mind when I put the program out. It would be nice to say that Travis's feedback was unique to the episode, but truth be told, and I found this to be tremendously interesting, and that's why I really suggest a lot of people head on over to the BOA forum to take a look at the conversation there. Beyond the people who enjoyed the conversation with William Zabel for the sensational elements behind it, there were quite a few BOA audio listeners who really disliked the program or were disappointed with the William Zabel return. I found it kind of amusing that in the last three years since he disappeared, William Zabel has sort of grown to legendary status on the program, but upon his return to the show, there was considerable backlash to his theories. It almost really kind of captures the idea of absence makes the heart grow fonder in a way, because the big William Zabel return drew a lot of skepticism from the BOA audio listeners. In fact, two separate people who did not see each other's posts because they came to me via different means and methods specifically use the phrase jump the shark with regards to William Zabel. So, really an interesting sort of sociological look here at the program in a lot of ways. Now, personally, I enjoyed the conversation quite a bit, and as is the case with all BOA audio episodes, I'm going to refrain from sharing my own personal thoughts on the veracity of what the guest was talking about. I don't know what else really to say about all this, but I wanted to be as transparent as possible with the BOA Audio listeners and let you know that this was the reaction to the show. There was a tremendous skepticism and near backlash against William Zabel from the listeners who I think just could not 
believe what he was saying, which is tremendously interesting to me because there was such excitement over his initial appearance on the program. Maybe William has taken his theories too far. Maybe he's advanced this conspiracy to the point where it stretches credulity. That seems to be what Travis is saying in his email. And uh, several people have written to me to suggest we get Evan Long on the program to explore the Columbine conspiracy as well. So this is not the last time we're going to look at this bizarre story. And beyond the interesting feedback from the BOA Audio listeners, I can assure you that that will not be the last time you hear from William Zabel on the program either. I'd be happy to bring William back on the program and really would like to present him with some of this criticism with regards to his theories, because I think that's the only way we can really get to the bottom of all this and really sort of explore this topic in an honest way. So I want to thank Travis for writing in. I want to thank all the BOA Audio listeners who wrote to me, posted in the forum, posted on Facebook, and had a lot of really thoughtful things to say about the William Zabel interview. Now, the next email is sort of the complete opposite, in a way, and it comes from someone who requested anonymity, but here is what this person has to say. I am writing this before I have listened to the interview, but just the prologue prompted me to share something that I have not told anyone. At the time of the shootings, I was living in Kansas, in the central time zone. I worked the night shift and was rather excited to be off that day, as I had some errands and stuff to catch up on. For some reason, as I was doing some housework, I had a strong urge to play some really hard, heavy, thrash, death metal music really loud. This was kind of unlike me, as I didn't really care for that type of music so much. Just in small doses, not for hours at a time. I picked out a few CDs from my boyfriend's collection and put them on. I also felt really angry, aggressive, and very restless. After I did some housework with the music blasting, I had to do a heavy workout because of how angry I felt. It was weird, and I'm glad I was alone, and no one crossed my path that morning. Around 12 noon or so, I finally started to feel tired, and made lunch, then logged in to check my email, and that was when I saw some of the news about Columbine. Now, looking back, I really wonder about the whole vibe of that day. Okay, going to listen to the rest of the interview. Thanks for listening, Anonymous. So that's sort of the other end of the spectrum here. That comes from a listener who requested anonymity here on their email, and I'm happy to provide that, who seems to suggest, if I'm reading into it what I think I am, that the anonymous writer was feeling whatever William Zabel suggests was going on with this harp mind control. So we've got a whole other end of the spectrum here with someone sort of backing up what William Zabel had to say, or at least suggesting that there was some kind of weird mood in the air. Like I said, this interview really generated a tremendous amount of feedback, ranging from disgust, as you saw from Travis, all the way to folks who were genuinely intrigued by some of the more extreme elements of William's theory. I don't have much to say regarding... The email here from Anonymous, I'm sort of just putting it out there for folks to digest and add to their gray basket with regards to Columbine, but I did find it interesting that one of the more 
radical aspects of William's theory here is kind of backed up a little bit from one of the listeners. So, like I said, do with it what you will, folks. Do with the information what you want. I'm just sharing it with all of you so you have more to add to your evidence pile. And just to sort of break things up a little bit, I want to read this final email. This one's just kind of a weird one. Takes us away from the, let's just call it what it is, controversial William Zabel episode and gets us back into the realm of high strangeness. Comes from Bill in Brookhaven, Mississippi, who shares a very weird story. I really enjoy your shows, and you are one of the best interviewers around but I have a somewhat strange story to tell on how I found out about you and BOA Audio. Until about a month ago, I had never heard of you or the program. I have downloaded and listened to many different paranormal shows over the last few years, but for whatever reason, had never run across BOA Audio. The way I was introduced to the show was by receiving the May 23, 2012 show with Jason Offit by email. The 80.1 megabyte BOA audio file I received was from my son-in-law's email account, but he insists that he did not send the file or even have knowledge of BOA audio. Don't get me wrong, I really enjoy your shows, but I am pretty stumped on how someone must have hacked into my son-in-law's email account, why or who sent me one of your podcasts. I'll close by saying that I have enjoyed listening to your new and older seasons no matter how I received that first audio file. Just keep up the great shows, along with the great interviews, and I'll keep on listening. Bill, in Brookhaven, Mississippi. That's a weird one, folks. I actually forwarded that one to Jason, because it kind of connects in with the story that he told on the program about the guy whose brother sent him the link to the story that Jason wrote, And then they have no recollection of that ever happening. So there's something weird going on here in general. I actually emailed it to Jason asking if it was more of the Offit weirdness because that's just strange stuff. I don't know really how that could have happened. I'm skeptical about the whole hacking thing just because why would somebody hack into Bill's son-in-law's email account to email him an episode of BOA Audio? That just doesn't make sense. So I am bewildered by that. I have no idea, really, how that all could have happened. Nonetheless, thank you, whomever out there in the ether passed along BOA Audio to Bill. We're happy to have you as part of our listening audience, my friend. And stick around, because there's a whole lot more esoteric audio madness coming down the pike. And on that note, I will uh, close the book here on BOA Audio Listener Feedback this week. Thank you to Bill, Travis, and the anonymous emailer for their correspondences here on BOA Audio Listener Feedback. Folks who have more to say about the William Zabel interview or BOA Audio in general, there's a number of ways you can get in touch with me. Let me run down the list. You can write to boaaudio at hotmail.com. Or go to binallofamerica.com, B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America.com, and click the contact button. And the final method is to join up at the official BOA forum, the US of E.com, T-H-E-U-S-O-F-E.com. 
We like to call it BOA's Paranormal Playground. Lots of awesome discussion going on there about the program, as well as pop culture and the world of the paranormal. And, as I said, a very spirited conversation happening right this minute regarding the controversial William Zabel 200th episode of the program. So if you have passionate thoughts about that episode, or you just want to hear what other people have been saying, head on over to the U.S. of E. and join in on the discussion. Of course, I would be remiss if I did not mention that I am a part of Facebook and Twitter, so punch in Benal, B-I-N-N-A-L-L, that'll bring up my profile. Feel free to befriend me, follow me, or poke me, it's all good, and I'd be happy to have you as part of my online circle of friends. And if you are on Facebook, punch in Benal of America and like us on Facebook. That way you can get a whole bunch of updates from me on the program and the website and join in on more fun from the VOA franchise. Up next, allow me to thank the outstanding and esteemed VOA staff, Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Senna, Richard Thomas, Marla Pena, Bruce Pretty, Tony Morrill, and our webmaster, Jeremy Boston. Since the last time you heard from me, we've got an all-new piece up at the website from Bruce Pretty, the paranormal apostate, sharing his story dubbed The Parable of the Deer. And we've got an all-new Trickster's Realm from Regan Lee in the pipeline, ready to go to be posted at Banal of America, and an all-new edition of Shadow of the Shinigami by Marla Pena that should be posted at the website soon as well. We say it every time here at the end of the program, my friends, but it is the truth. If you're only listening to BOA Audio and you're not reading the columns at Benal of America, then you're only getting half the story. BOA, make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. Now comes the time in the program where I ask you to make a donation to the BOA franchise. But, since we had Sean Cotts on and his Indiegogo campaign only lasts for another two weeks or so, I'm just going to pass you along over to him and the Indiegogo campaign page and ask you to make a donation to help make Strange Country a different kind of UFO documentary. You can find that at Indiegogo.com slash Strange Country. And while I cannot speak for Sean, I am sure he would agree that no donation is too small and all donations go towards the making of Strange Country, a different kind of UFO documentary. Next time on BOA Audio, my friends, we have got an absolute barn burner episode for you. We're going to try and time it out so we can get it into your hands by July 4th. We are welcoming back to the program the godfather of parapolitics, the legendary Ken Thomas, for what I jokingly called with him a conspiracy intervention. As the folks who tuned into the original appearance by Ken Thomas on the program may recall, that was kind of a jam session. This one definitely is a jam session as well, but since Ken Thomas really is one of the big players in the history of conspiracy theory, I kind of pepper him with a lot of my own personal concerns about conspiracy research. 
Like, what's the point behind all this? And really, can anything be done about the New World Order at this stage in the game? And Ken really gives some amazingly thoughtful and pensive responses to those questions, and it goes deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole as we examine really conspiracy theory from a whole different level, a real meta level. We just smash the fourth wall of conspiracy theory and look at it as a genre, look at it as a field, and look at where it needs to go in the future and where it may have gone astray. I taped the interview at least two months ago, so I cannot even begin to tell you some of the talking points that emerge out of this thing, but it is lengthy, it is loose, and it is quite the conversation. I have been dying to unleash this one on the BOA Audio listeners, and that's why I sat on it in time for the 4th of July. I feel like it's going to be the perfect edition of the program for folks who are going to be traveling around for the 4th and need something tremendous to listen to, or just the folks who are going to be having a little backyard barbecue and want some esoteric accompaniment. This one, my friends, is the choice you're going to want to make. The legendary Ken Thomas joins us on the next edition of BOA Audio. And on that note, we close the book on this installment of the program. Big, big thanks once again to Sean Cotts for coming on the show. Thank you to Travis, Bill, and the anonymous emailer for their contributions to BOA Audio listener feedback. And, of course, tremendous thanks to all you great folks out there, the hardcore BOA Audio listeners, the people who tune in to the very end of the program. You are the fuel that drives the BOA mothership. I am humbled by your continued support of this program. 201 episodes and still going strong, my friends. Thank you for your support of the program, and thank you for making BOA Audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist. Until next time, this is Tim Benall, thanking you for listening and signing off.